right superplex for two. Jarrett roll Jarrett. <laughs> Jericho, I meant. Jericho. <laughs> that would be a great tag team. That would have been a good tag team, yeah. Yeah, Jericho. Yeah. Hello everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days, and not so good old days, of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and tonight my co-host, Alec Pridgen, challenged me to a bike versus bike match. We were all set and ready to go when we realized neither of us actually owns a motorcycle. So I guess we'll just host a podcast instead. I mean, it's less exciting, but I guess that works, yeah. How's it going tonight, Al? Good, how's it going with you? That's going okay. Um, we are on the second show of the Hogwild slash now Roadwild series. I'll say, is this the second show or the first show? Yeah, that, that's, that's a little confusing how to handle this one, isn't it? Because for Roadwild 1997, it's going to be wild. The name has changed from Hogwild to Roadwild. Reportedly, that's because WCW needed to change it to avoid a trademark issue with the Harley Owners Group, or HOG a Harley-Davidson Community Marketing Club. Also, how lazy is that tagline? What extra information does it give you about the show? It's like if the tagline for Let's Go to the Ring was, There Will Be a Ring. I mean, that does narrow it down. (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) Road Wild 1997 was held on Saturday, August 9th, 1997 at the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally in Sturgis, South Dakota, in front of 6,500 fans. Zero paid, as once again, this is being held for free. It did earn 180,000 pay-per-view buys, which is pretty decent for 1997 overall. There are six pay-per-views that score lower than that and five higher, though one, of course, is much higher, as Starcade 1997 will earn a massive 650,000. It does throw the curve off just a bit. (laughs) Just a bit, yeah. Will the Sturgis atmosphere feel as interesting the second time around? To find out... Let's go to the ring. Everything is rumbling at WCW's Road Wild. The NWO has tried to blanket the world with its propaganda. Hollywood Hogan is the man. Now it's crumbling around them. He's got him in the ring. Lex Luger has recaptured the WCW World Title. Luger won the title! WCW heads triumphantly into the Sturgis bike route. Will it be a short trip of victory for Lex Luger? Luger's a champion! Luger's a champion! Or a long road of defeat for Hollywood Hogan? Find out as WCW goes road wild. The opening video package is more storyline-focused than last year's, going over the NWO's dominance. Until recently, that is, when Lex Luger won the world title from Hulk Hogan. The ending line of the package, Find out when WCW goes Road Wild, was clearly meant to work with the old Hog Wild title, as Road Wild is not, to my knowledge, a common expression. I can't think of using that before, yeah, no. Still, it's a short but sweet video package, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. As we get much, much crappier, shakier helicopter footage uh, compared to last year's show, 
Host Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the show, sponsored by Bikers Dream Ultra Custom Cycles. The crowd still prominently features bikers, but there seem to be a lot more traditional wrestling fans mixed in than at last time. So hopefully we'll end up getting more um, sane reactions to some of the matches. <laughs> yeah, it seemed like they've had more actual seating in here. Yeah. I don't know if they actually did, but it looks like they have more seating. So it looked like, like, like the bikers along the very front row, and then you had like traditional seating or, or at least traditional crowd going back further. Yeah, exactly. Tony introduces tonight's co-host, Bobby the Brain Heenan, and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes. Their outfits look quite similar to last year's, but thankfully they're seated behind a commentary desk, so we can't see if Dusty's still opted for short shorts. <laughs> I can only assume he is. I hope he hasn't. <laughs> he did, however, switch out the biker cap for a backwards ball cap. I do really like the desk design. The gray and pale blue colors work well to make the more brightly colored Road Wild logo pop. Mm, yeah, And it kind of suggests like metal, which works with the biker theme. Tony mentions that Luger recently became the world champ and wonders if he can hold on to it in the return match with Luger. Well, one could always say that a champion's greatest foe is himself, after all. He is actually facing Hogan. Now I want to see Luger fighting like one of the big halls of mirrors, like Enter the Dragon. Oh, can you imagine, especially if they had like a good echo going? Oh, yeah. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> the chorus of Lugers. Oh, my gosh, that'd be great. Or um, the, the Jet Li movie, The One. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tony runs down the other WCW versus NWO matches, covering most of the card tonight. If WCW can win all of them, he thinks that's it for the NWO. Heenan says, you can't trust the NWO and they'll be up to something, and tries to sell us on this being a capacity crowd when this is an open outdoor space that can't possibly even have an actual capacity. I guess you could put a fence around it, maybe? No one sits past here. That's capacity, there okay? Because bikers love rules. Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that would go over great. Yes. Dusty says, opportunity is knocking on the door, and even though the NWO have laid out unsurmountable odds over the past year and a half, it could all crumble for the NWO tonight. Let's talk about the set for a moment. Okay. I think that you said when we were watching it that it kind of has a more military look than a biker rally, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with that. The scaffolding is covered by this netting, and it's over plain dirt ground. kind of gives the whole thing a bit of a brown and green kind of look, and that feels very army to me. Yeah. They kind of needed to add, I guess, some chrome to yeah. give it biker. Yeah, work, yeah. I, d I didn't really like the set overall, did you? No, not really. Yeah, it's kind of drab. Yeah. On to our first match, which is Vicious and Delicious. That's Scott Flash Norton and Buff Bagwell. Definitely a debate as to who's supposed to be which one. It's in their mind. <laughs> I can see Norton trying to make the case for himself on the other side. He, do he does more have more meat on his bones. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> more of a slow roast, I guess. <laughs> a weird train of thought. <laughs> Thank you for that. With Vincent versus Harlem Heat. Booker T and Stevie Ray. The referee for this one is Nick Patrick with a very Mike Atkins saloon ref kind of look. <laughs> so back in July, the NWO held an open invitational on Nitrous saying, you're either with us or against us. And that's how we got members like Bagwell and Norton in the group. Since then, they have formed this team. Officially, they don't really talk about the story of this match. Harlem Heat at one point were the number of contenders of the tag titles mm -hmm. held by the Outsiders. Things happened and other not. 
So either way, there's still a strong competition for the Outsiders. So sending what essentially is the B team in to sort of take them out before they can fight them is the story going here. Okay. Which was more stated, that's kind of inference, but yeah. Yeah, at the very least, it's one of the many NWO versus WCW matches that we're going to have tonight. Yeah, without that NWO dynamic, you'd have nothing going on. At least there is something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In a bit of a nice additional touch this year, each match features license plate graphics with the names of the wrestlers or teams. Though oddly, despite having a tag team name, by my understanding, Norton and Bagwell get independent plates, while Harlem Heat share a plate. Yeah, that is kind of strange. NWO B-Team theme count? One. <laughs> I find the B-Team theme a little more tolerable than the main NWO or Wolfpack themes, as it has just a bit more of a melody. Mm. But it does kill the goodwill pretty fast with the annoying NWO voice lines all over the place. So ultimately, it's pretty much even. Yeah, I found watching of those shows, there's a slight variation in the speed of it as well. Mm-hmm. There's like a really, really slowed down NWO theme. Well, I think it's like more like Hogan's uh, dubbed in one. Mm. And there's one where it's much quicker. It's probably a bad thing when you're hearing the NWO theme so often that you can detect minute differences yes. in it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, it is kind of bad. Like The count gets pretty high tonight, by the yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, at least with the top stars, they give them personalization, like Randy Savage has his stuff in there. Yeah, I mean, it's still the main... It's not like they mixed pump and circumstance with it. They just have Randy Savage voice lines instead of the normal announcer. That would be an interesting experiment. Could you mix your two least favorite themes together and something like a better theme? Or would it be worse somehow? I genuinely don't know how that would turn out. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody needs to get on that. Norton has quite the mullet this time. He does, yes. Bagwell gets a piggyback ride from him on the way to the ring. The commentators discuss Luger versus Hogan, and Dusty gives quite a nice little plot point, wondering if Luger, who apparently had to do media appearances as the new champ, got time to train and prepare. Huh. I don't know if that's actually legit at all, but I like that as a storyline point, that your first week after winning the title might be a little bit more occupied, and you might not be able to work in your usual workout routines and all. Hmm. I can see that. For the Heat's entrance, they get precisely one little poof of pyro. (laughs) Booker has decided to wear a New York Yankees baseball cap in South Dakota. You're the face this time, Booker. Wear a South Dakota team cap. I will say, I saw him on Nitro. I can't remember the one before this or the one before that. He was doing that too, so maybe he's just repping the team in general. Yeah, he might just like it. I mean, it's Harlem Heat, so... Yeah. Anyway, it's not like a, I'm doing this just for this show. Right, 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 yeah. be clear, yeah. Also, apparently, South Dakota does not actually have an MLB team. Though their Sioux Falls Canaries are part of the Partner League, the American Association of Professional Baseball, an arrangement I cannot pretend to understand. Yes. <laughs> Side note, by the way, one of their Independence League teams is the Spearfish Sasquatch. So consider my day officially made. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> I was going to say Canaries is such a low-key, tiny little name for a team, but that's so much better. It, isn't it? Yeah. I think the town name is actually Spearfish. I, I would think, yeah. But, but the combination of Spearfish and Sasquatch just sounds awesome. Yes. It's like very, a very evocative image. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know what it is, but you can picture it. Yeah. The Heat, per the commentators, have dumped their manager, Sherry, but have promised a surprise for tonight. Dusty bizarrely suggests that they're going to have to airlift their surprise in. I don't know why. <laughs> Do you like just watch Operation Dumbo Drop, maybe? And they <laughs> got that out of his mind? I don't know. Wouldn't put it past him. (laughs) Referee Nick Patrick, 
turned heel to join the NW after last year's show, but of course returned to the side of good at this year's Spring Stampede. Correct. Booker and Bagwell start, and the NWO largely dominates through early exchanges, countering Booker and Stevie's attacks, until, while Stevie and Norton are in, Bagwell goes to yell at Booker for no apparent reason. Patrick ushers Bagwell out, and while he's not looking, Booker kicks Norton from the apron and sends him into a nice sidekick from Stevie. Big cheers for that. The crowd likes the heat a lot more than last year. They do, yes. They do get some booze, so maybe some of last year's attendees came back. (laughs) Stevie slams Norton, and Heenan oddly claims he's never seen anyone slam Norton. Ice Train did it last year with an injured arm. (laughs) Yeah. Booker and Stevie trade off working on Norton, earning a two-count with a Booker flying forearm, and cheat to keep advantage until Norton catches a Booker spin kick and slams him so hard that Patrick looks sympathetic. (laughs) (laughs) Then gets the tag to Bagwell, who quickly gets dumped outside when Stevie pulls down the ropes on a whip and sent into the ring post. There's a noise like a trombone blasting. Yeah. We we hear that a lot tonight. I, I never saw what was making the sound, but it really sounds like if you play a trombone as loud as you possibly can. Yeah, maybe someone's horn? I don't know. It doesn't sound like a bike horn. Mm. It sounds like, you know, an actual wind instrument. Huh. <laughs> the Heat trade off working over Bagwell, earning two counts with a Stevie shoulder block, Booker jumping axe kick, and Stevie suplex. We cut to the entrance's dirt ramp to watch Jacqueline walk down to ringside. Bagwell gets two with a crossbody as Vincent protests Jacqueline's presence. Keenan implies that he's just worried because she could beat him up. <laughs> Bagwell finally escapes a Booker powerbomb and hits his own, then tags Norton, who decimates the heat and shoulder blocks Booker for zero as Stevie boots him in the head. (laughs) Everybody in, and as they fight, Vincent runs around to the side. Stevie clearly looks to see if he's there, (laughs) then bounces off the ropes so Vincent can grab his leg and distract him. (laughs) Bagwell knocks Stevie outside, where he goes after Vincent. Bagwell goes to save Vincent, and Patrick goes to manage that, So Jacqueline grabs Norton and lands rapid punches, stunning him for a Booker-Harlem sidekick. Booker pins Norton, and he briefly hooks the leg, but then realizes that Jacqueline's supposed to hold that leg, so he lets go, so she can hold the leg down to help him get the three count and the win. (laughs) (laughs) Jacqueline celebrates with Booker and Stevie, as Booker calls her their secret. It's WCW1 and WO0, as Dusty notes. Thoughts on this one? That was a pretty solid tag team match. It's one of those matches where there's no like amazing spot, there's no like a big high spot, there's no like move you've never seen before or some clever sort of thing that happens. Same time, other than stuff you pointed towards the end where they're a bit obvious with certain cues, mm-hmm. there's no like botches either. No one like messes up on a slam or messes the kick or anything like that. It's also nice and steady, so it's never like a big lull spot where someone's in a hole for like two, three minutes. Nothing amazing here, nothing fancy. It's kind of just a match, which is <laughs> it's fine. Nothing wrong with that. I do have issue with the dynamic, though, because the Heat are definitely still wrestling like heels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that you get in the NWO angle to some extent, where good guys and bad guys alike are aligned against the NWO, treating it you know, as the uber threat. Yeah. So heels still wrestle like heels. The problem to me is that the NWO totally wrestles like faces. They do, yeah. So it, is, it doesn't feel like a heel versus heel match Yeah. where one side of the heels are technically the faces. It feels like total heels versus total faces and the crowd is cheering the heels. Yeah. <laughs> There's a match we'll see later in the show with the 
dirtiest player in the game. And when he does his cheating stuff against someone else who's cheating, you know, at least get that. Yeah. That's just stick. Yeah. Maybe the Heat didn't realize it would get a deface reaction at the show, probably based on last year. Yeah. Be my guess. So they plan this whole match out as we're the heels, we're going to stuff, we're going to cheat, and you're going to lose. And they didn't adjust any of that for the reaction they got. Which I, I can understand, like you said, given the reaction they got last year, Booker might have thought, no matter what's going on, we're going to get booed. Yeah. So let's just go with it. And then they just had too much planned for that. Yeah. That just didn't work out. It's one of those things, yeah, they, they would have to come up with something pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. They have to get Vincent, which would be kind of hard because he's not the smartest man in wrestling, as we know, to like come up with a whole new thing where he cheats first, mm-hmm. like more aggressively, and then right. covers four, which they kind of get, but yeah, definitely is the heat cheating a lot. Yeah, yeah. And he does nothing. No. The point where he protests Jacqueline coming in, I think, is the first time that I can remember seeing him move. Oh, uh, yeah. At ringside. It's just amazing. It's getting that paycheck, man. Yeah. I agree that I don't know that there's there's outright botches in this one, but I felt like this match was pretty awkward overall. I agree. There were moves that didn't seem like they quite hit right. There were some strange pauses, some mistimed or perhaps partially forgotten spots, and just plain repetition. In fact, there were spots in this match that I, when I was taking my initial notes, wrote down before they happened. Oh. <laughs> Because they had happened three times before in the match, and I could tell they were coming again. It's still a pretty decent match with some nasty strikes and some really good charging moves. Norton, in particular, just kind of barrels over people at times, which is really fun. And Stevie has some surprisingly awesome kicks that I'm not used to for him to mix in with Booker's usual amazing ones. They do have some good spots planned. It just kind of feels like the entire thing is moving at around three-quarter speed. It's more hesitant than you'd expect, given the people involved, many of whom are longtime veterans. Yeah. It doesn't help that, as you noted, the heel-face dynamic is all kinds of strange. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) The NWO is clearly supposed to be the heels, but the Heat spends way more of the match cheating. Yes. I wouldn't call it a bad match, but for me, it was just, there was too much working against this one for it to be a good opener. It's just kind of there. Not getting into what happened in the second match yet, obviously, but you could have switched those two matches. It might have worked a little better. Because mm-hmm. even though, as we'll discuss, the second match isn't your typical cruiserweight match, which you get more of that later in the show, that feels more like an opening match mm-hmm. than this one does. And it might help with the heel-face dynamic a little bit that you'd get guilt by association for the NWO guys yeah, for what's go. going to happen. You could even, like, could have done it where they cross paths with Conan on the way out and, like, you know, high-five him or something. Yeah. So make it clear, yes, we're in the same shirt in case you didn't get it. And yeah. we're plotting what he dealt with. And, he's and doing. to be clear, the crowd gives this match almost exactly the right reaction yeah. for the storyline. It's just that they haven't planned enough NWO cheating spots, so it, it's kind of too late to really adjust that. Right. Well, that's the thing with critiquing shows in general. It's easy to go, oh, they should have done this, should have done that. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Exactly. Yeah. But then you got to think how they do it in the moment. Yeah. There's some instances where it would be really hard to do it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, fun little fact for you. With Harlem Heat and their manager, all of them are in the Hall of Fame. Okay. However, no one on their side is in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> no Bagwell, Norton, or unsurprisingly, Vincent. Yeah. I mean, honestly, well, there's a whole debate over who should be in the Hall of Fame in general. Virgil hadn't been in both companies, maybe. Uh, once you get past some really good people, the real notable people, I could. I'm not, I wouldn't be you know, adamantly I mean, against it. That is, that is the thing. Like, he had some notable, notable moments, especially in the WWF. Yeah, I think that puts him over the edge a bit more than. I, I could see him, him being it. 
I, I would maybe consider campaigning for Norton a little bit just on a global wrestling Hall yeah. of Fame kind of kind of perspective. He gets pretty darn big in Japan. True. From that angle, yeah, I can see. Yeah. It's kind of a weird thing. Unlike with last year's show, where Scott Norton made this whole storyline where he him and his team and Ice Cream broke up. There's not really a big blow-off thing with the whole vicious and delicious thing. At this point, Norton is splitting the time between Japan and WCW. I think Bagwell sometimes come with them. They team together there a bit. But they never, like, break up. There's no, like, big thing that happens. They kind of just stop being attacked. <laughs> okay. Like, you'll see him on one show, and then just they're just not doing it anymore. Huh. Nothing really happens. As for Harlem Heat, they would challenge the Steiners in a match at Fall Brawl, the next pay-per-view. Okay. Tony advertises WCWWrestling.com and notes that the Steiners are online presently. Sadly, Rick is not playing a racing game this time. Instead, he and Scott are standing behind Ted DiBiase and a teenager whose name is never spoken, who is asking Ted questions. Rick is wearing his normal wrestling headgear upside down atop his head, which looks very odd. I bet, yes. Scott is in his odd halfway-to-big-pop-a-pump stage with the goatee and everything. Yeah. So Heenan won't be able to use the trick that Tony taught him last year to tell the two apart. Oh, yeah, that's true. Tony said, said Rick's the one with the mustache. Yeah. <laughs> so why did Ted decide to manage the signers? Ted says it's because they represent traditional wrestling, but then Tony talks over it so the interview can be exclusive to WSWWrestling.com. Tony says DiBiase's the first man to step away from the NWO willingly, but uh, Patrick definitely did so on Spring Stampede before DiBiase did. I mean, it's the same show, I guess, you could argue. No, I mean, DiBiase's clearly aligned with the NWO at the end of it. He still comes out with them, where Patrick has already decided to oh, step okay. away from them in that final match. I just meant yeah, that the incident, the incident, yeah. incident happens in the same yeah. show. I get why they plug these things, is that they want to make money on their now-defunct website. You don't really get anything major from these segments. It's just, hey, here's the service we had at the time the show was running. Use it. Yeah. Our second match is Conan versus Rey Mysterio Jr. in a Mexican death match. Referee for this one is Mickey J. As mentioned in the previous match setup, the open invitation happened in July on Nitro. The person to join and turn against his brothers would be Conan. It would cause a rift between him and the Luchadors, mostly headed by Rey Mysterio because he's the one that speaks English fluently, <laughs> which does help the cutting promos in English. A little bit. Yeah. Giving us a very slight edge over La Parca. I'll give, I'll give him that. But yeah, so Conan is now part of the NWO. He doesn't really change his look at all. He just wears the NWO shirt under his button shirt instead of wearing like the, the wife beater tank top. Right, because he'd already changed his gimmick when he became part of the Dungeon of Doom, right? Yes. The sort of gangsta thing he had going with the other. Right, yeah. The shirt, we, we button the top up, nothing else. Yeah, which tape. willfully ignoring all the other structural properties of the shirt, yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, as part of his proving himself to the group, he would attack Rey Mysterio after a tag match, seemingly breaking his leg with the story they're going with here. Rey would, of course, come back and challenge him to a match. He would be extra heelish in this, like the, Rey comes out to talk to Dimitri with on crutches, and he would kick the crutches away from him, leading the other luchadors to stand up for him. And Nogla is fully cementing his heel turn. He would cheat to beat, of all people, La Parca on Nitro. Well, that just guarantees that you hate his guts anyway. Oh, 100%? <laughs> yes. It's kind of more of that tradition versus disrespect thing, because he's turning against all the luchadors, and he's beating them up in the lead-up to this match. Right. And now, correct me if I'm wrong, they at least say during the um, match at some point 
that Conan was responsible, at least in part, for bringing a lot of the luchadors into WCW in the first place. Correct. So that kind of adds a little bit extra to mm-hmm. it. You got us to join this company in the first place, and now you're the one that's betraying it for this other organization? That's, yeah, that's true. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Conan's license plate calls him K-Dog, and Mysterio says he's Flying Fury. <laughs> okay. NWOB team theme count, two. As Conan makes his entrance in his new stupid outfit, seriously, why button just the top button of a button-down shirt? <laughs> Tony welcomes Mike Tanay to the commentary team. Heenan notes that Tanay just came back from Mexico, and Tanay says he was making a documentary on Lucha Libre. Tony asks him for the rules to this match, and Tanay says there are no disqualifications, but says nothing else that makes it different, so I guess add Mexican deathmatch to street fight, hardcore match, no holds barred, and many more as alternate names for a no disqualification match. Pretty much, yeah. Tanay builds up the lengthy history between Conan and Mysterio, with both training at the Tijuana training camp run by Mysterio's uncle, Rey Mysterio Sr. Mm-hmm. Ray's blue and white outfit is pretty great, though it does pale in comparison to the awesomeness of last year's Spidey outfit. That's true, it's a hard one to beat. Tony is not sure that Ray's at 100%, and Tanay agrees that he was favoring his leg backstage. But Heenan says that last week he seemed to fake his leg being injured, and Heenan thinks he's fine. Dusty says his leg might not be 100%, but his heart is, and hopes he'll land another blow to the NWO. Mysterio acrobatically counters Conan's power early on, but Conan clotheslines him down and gets the crowd to yell Arriba La Raza with him before they remember that they hate him and boo. Mm-hmm. Crowd loves to cheer. And chant, yeah. <laughs> no matter if you're face or heel, the crowd will always chant along with your stuff. Yeah. And then they'll boo you. <laughs> yeah. You got that with the uh, We the People thing in WWE in like 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. But they were definitely bad guys, but they would everyone would cheer along with it, yeah. Yeah, the various times when Flair is a bad guy, people will still go woo along with him. Yes. Oh, that'd be great if if when he wooed, they went, boo! (laughs) That would be good, yeah. Conan starts working the leg, including a neat sideways figure four, and Mysterio seems to earn a rope break by grabbing the ropes, though I think it might be more that he's just dragging himself outside so Conan breaks to avoid losing his balance. Yes. The ref doesn't really seem to force it. It's true. Mysterio's already limping, and Tanay wonders if he was really ready to return. Mysterio gets an amazing flip over the ropes into a head scissor takedown, but on a leapfrog, his leg buckles. Conan works the leg with a chop block, the ropes, leg scissors, and loads of kicks. Mysterio can barely fight back, and he even pokes Conan's eyes. Tanay notes how unusual it is for Mysterio to take a shortcut. Angry, Conan tugs at Mysterio's mask. Mysterio struggles, but Conan powerbombs him to stop that, and unmask him. Mysterio keeps hold and presses the mask to his face to block it from actually being seen, and knocks Conan away, then pulls his mask back on. Tanay notes that that would be a disqualification in Mexico. Yes. I'm not sure if that would still be a disqualification in a supposedly no-disqualification match, but yeah, I, I, maybe it's just sure. that big. It is pretty big in Mexico. Yeah. It might be an exception to the rule, yeah. Mysterio gets a double-leg drop kick, which hurts him, a couple leg drops, and then tries a springboard splash, but mostly misses Conan and further hurts his knee. Conan continues deconstructing Mysterio's knee with a dropkick, pretzel hold, and strikes, but Mysterio fights back with a wheelbarrow arm drag takedown and manages to roll Conan up for two and a half. Dusty keeps calling Conan Conad. He does, yes. (laughs) Never quite gets it. No. It's like, have you seen the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, Dusty? (laughs) (laughs) Mysterio lands dropkicks to Conan's knee, 
but he can barely stand himself. Nevertheless, he slowly climbs up top, but Conan catches him mid-leap and hits the cradle DDT, then locks on the Tequila Sunrise for a swift submission and the win. Conan holds on after the bell as Mickey J shouts for him to break. Conan finally lets go, smiling, and Mysterio rolls in pain on the mat as Conan just leans on the ropes, grinning. NWOB team theme count, three. (laughs) Referees Mark Curtis and Scott Dickinson come out to help keep Conan back as a trainer comes to check on Mysterio's leg. So we're WCW1 and WO1. Thoughts on this one? That was a pretty strong match. It's a bit unusual for those involved, which I think for the most part works out in his favor. I was definitely more sour in this match when we first watched it. But rewatching it, I thought the pacing was a bit better than I recalled. Mm-hmm. First time I saw it, I was maybe I had in my mind that I was thinking it was slow and like it was really lopsided. But when I really watched it again, I'm like, okay, there's actually more going on here than I thought. So it's it's a really unusual match, especially for Rey Mysterio. Yes, the high flying is almost completely contained to the opening section. Mm-hmm. It's a whole bunch of mat work and Mysterio just desperately trying to stay in the match whatever way he can. Yes, I liked the way they sort of portrayed that. Because I thought Ray did a really good job of, as always, being the smaller person in the match. Mm-hmm. They gave him these nice hope spots. I mean, not quite as effective as your favorite match, going back a bit, where it's Great Muda taking apart poor Luger's leg. I knew one of us would reference that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I figured I'd get to it first, yeah. It's a nice bit of storytelling. Like, he's already fighting a guy bigger than him, and now he's fighting him with one leg, and he's mm-hmm. being more sadistic. Yeah, he does some really amazing stuff. Like, there's points where he needs to kick Conan, but he can't put enough weight on his bad leg to manage to kick with his good leg. So he has to, like, launch himself up using his arms on the ropes to do a kick with his good leg and then try and land on both legs so he doesn't put too much weight on his bad leg. Yeah. He's thought out a lot of how you would move with if this were a totally, actually legit injury. Yeah. And to reference another thing we we occasionally reference, it's very Steamboat. Oh, yeah. The way that Steamboat would think about, okay, not just I'm injured, but what does the injury mean? How does that affect my movements? There's a lot of that with Ray in this. It's really nicely done. Yeah, you can watch a lot of matches where someone, their leg is so worn down they can't even stand up, but then once someone throws them off the ropes, they just run like normal. You're like, wait Mm -hmm. a second. Yeah, and and Ray really, really thinks about that for most of this match. There's probably one or two spots where you can catch him if you're really, really looking out for it. But even when he's doing like the leg drops and the and the drop kicks to Conan, Mm -hmm. he makes clear that that's injuring him too. You know, has trouble standing back up. Yes, when he's going to climb the ropes at the end, he's hobbling to them, almost falling over with the aid of the ropes, and climbs much slower than usual, thinking about which leg he can put pressure on to climb. You can tell he put a ton of thought into what this is going to mean yeah. as a injury for this match. It's really impressive work. Yeah, Ray's downfall in this match is he's still a wrestling face, so he has to be dumb. <laughs> yes. And go, even though I can barely stand, I should climb the rope and jump at somebody. Yes. Mind you, we're in, this is match 1997. We're in 2022. People still haven't figured out that if you're, say, 200 pounds, and the guy is like 280, 300, 400 pounds, don't do a cross body on him because he will just catch you. <laughs> yes. If you just dropkick him, you can't catch that, you know. <laughs> but I'll throw your body evenly at him. That's perfect. <laughs> My only critique, I would say, of the match is early on when he goes out to Ray's mask, Ray seems like he's just like unconscious back then. He's fighting back all the time. Then once he goes to the mask, he kind of sits there for about 30, 40 seconds. doesn't seem to fight at all. Then they realize that, and that's why he did the powerbomb spot and he keeps going. Yeah. But just briefly, he's like, he's just kind of sitting there, what's this guy up to? But he knows what he's doing. 
That's my, that's a little thing, really, not a major thing, but yeah. Yeah, like, like I said, I think this was a really unusual Mysterio match, but very interesting. Conan just spends most of it taking Mysterio's leg apart, but the match remained entertaining as Mysterio did an amazing job of selling the injury to get maximum sympathy and found really creative ways to get a strike or two of his own, despite the damage he'd taken. So it comes off as a testament to Mysterio's heart and determination, even more so than the quite similar Ice Train and Scott Norton match last year. It was actually kind of interesting that both Hog Wilds so far, sorry, Hog, Hog and Road Wilds, I guess, sure. have featured a one-sided beatdown and an injured limb in their second match. Yes. <laughs> We'll have to see if that theme and the, uh, actually now it occurs to me, Steiner's on the internet table theme Oh yeah, uh, will carry forward in future shows. Mm-hmm. And Conan, I also have to give a lot of credit for. He found a lot of varied ways to attack the leg, mm-hmm. too. He didn't just stick with one idea. He kept it going with yeah. different holds, different concepts. So they, they really did a lot to make this interesting. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that Mysterio loses much by ultimately tapping out. No. He fights way too hard and for too long to look weak. In the process, it's more they just, it gives out and he, he, he can't do it anymore. Yeah. That's another thing we, you see change between 96 and 97. You have verbal submission with Ice Train. Right. And 97, we have actual tap out. Yes, yes. We've gone to the tap outs now at that point. Yes. What, what's your preference between those? Honestly, I like the tap out. If you were like way in the back in the cheap seats, the nosebleeds, you can see that. Whereas this sort of, someone saying something you can't hear and then referring the bell is much less interesting to me. Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat. The, the tap out is a very visceral, obvious reaction. Yeah. And normally, for those close enough, it has a good sound to it. That's true. And then for those far away, you can still see the motion clearly what's going on. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think I prefer that. Where for the verbal one, I think it can work if the guy really yells. Yeah. But uh, oftentimes doesn't work that way. So I think the tap out was a good innovation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a, a bit of an unexpected match type from Mysterio and Conan, but I thought they did a really good job with this. Yeah, other than one bit where I thought Ray kind of stopped fighting, I thought they did a good job of this balance. Ray will actually stay out of wrestling for a bit to sell the injury and I believe to just generally rehab. Because, you know, even at this point, you know, by now he's had like 30 knee surgeries of some degree at this point. I've seen a lot of the ring experience happen to you. He took some time to get better. He will make a return in October for a pretty famous match at 97's Halloween Havoc. Okay, yeah, that's the Mysterio Guerrero one, right? It is. Phantom outfit. That's the one. (laughs) We cut to shots of Sturgis, and Heenan wonders how many tattoos are in the town now. (laughs) Tony tells us that a lot of WCW stars once again took a road trip this year, and we get yet more awful helicopter footage. Seriously, stop. (laughs) Tony throws to Mean Gene, who is somewhat ridiculously wearing a suit coat and a t-shirt, but still looks way, way better than last year's biker fisherman outfit. Yes. Gene takes off his coat to show a tattoo on his arm, claiming he doesn't remember how that happened. (laughs) (laughs) I'd bet that's temporary. I would think so. It's somewhat impressive, though, that he manages to simultaneously shill the hotline with the mic in one hand while he puts his coat back on with the other. (laughs) That's experience, you know. 1-900-909-9900. Let's adjourn to the ring, Gene says. In the event we ever do some kind of courtroom wrestling spinoff show, Al, I think we've got our title. That works for me. (laughs) Our third match is The Horseman, the Crippler, Chris Benoit, and Mongo McMichael, versus The Iceman, Dean Malenko, and Jeff Jarrett, with Queen Deborah McMichael, in a tag team elimination match. Referee for this one is Scott Dickinson. 
this one is not an NWO versus WCW match. Holy horseman drama, Batman. <laughs> Jeff Darrow would make his big return to WCW, his first of many. He would be infamously entered into the Four Horsemen. He would be brought in as a new member by Ric Flair in a segment Bob members quite well. <laughs> the strut off, yes, where Jarrett has one variety of strut and Flair has like 57. <laughs> yes. So pretty much right away there'd be tension in the group because both Benoit and Mongo really don't like Jarrett. In fact, basically nobody likes Jarrett except for Flair. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. But anyway, so we'd call him ahead in July, which is a very important month, obviously, so far, where he'd be kicked out of the group just to create some peace there. Yet again, Malenko is back in this kind of match where he's essentially a hired gun. The idea is that Jared knows the horsemen are to get him because he has a U.S. title and they didn't like him. They've interfered to some degree in Malenko's match. They cost him the U.S. title sort of accidentally, not like typically targeting him. So he agrees that there's, quote, strength and numbers. So he agrees to him together for this match. Okay. So yeah, looking back at repetition from last year, we don't get a women's match this time, but we do get Benoit versus Malenko after a fashion. Yep. Some nice touches with the license plate graphics on this one. Malenko's looks frozen because he's the Iceman. Nice. Jarrett's is gold because he's currently United States champion. Fair enough. And Mongo's is blue and orange, which are the team colors of his primary NFL team, the Chicago Bears. Mm-hmm. As for Benoit, his is red. I don't know. Maybe it's meant to be a maple leaf because he's Canadian. I guess maple leaf. Maybe, maybe like the picture I have. That's my best guess, yeah. The awesome horseman theme brings out Mongo and Benoit. As they walk down, Tony points out Mysterio being carted out by the trainer and refs in the background. Jarrett's horrible country music brings out Jarrett, accompanied by Deborah and, sadly, by Malenko. Couldn't they just let him have his own theme? <laughs> no. Darn. Jarrett's outfit has somehow gotten worse <laughs> by the addition of gold stars down the weird white stripey bits, in part because the ones around the collar don't quite seem centered. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's true. Deborah has her queen of the WCW sash. Yes, she does. I remain astonished that that sash is on more than one show with the WCW right there. Did no one ever look at it? No, no. Dusty, about to make a point about the Malenko-Jarrett pairing, gets very distracted by a shot of the crowd and tries, through giggles and Heenan's taunting, to make his point, but finally gives up, pronouncing himself flubbergasted. <laughs> Uh, I love Dusty. Mm. He does, much later, finally make a point about Malenko usually working alone. Jarrett does not want in when it looks like Mongo is going to be starting, but when it ends up being Benoit, Jarrett volunteers. Benoit hammerlock and Jarrett arm drags free and immediately tags Malenko. <laughs> Benoit and Malenko rapidly dodge and counter each other, neither able to land a major move until Malenko rolls up Benoit for two. Benoit headbutts him and tags Mongo. Malenko drop toe holds him, but Benoit kicks him from outside, and Mongo hits a bellowing slam. The horsemen trade off wearing Malenko down. The crowd chants, Jarrett sucks, and he plugs his ears. <laughs> the horsemen earn two counts with a Benoit elbow and Benoit snap suplex, and Mongo taunts Jarrett between beating Malenko up. Malenko finally dodges a three-point stance charge and tags a surprise Jarrett, who does not look very eager. <laughs> Jarrett, though, works himself up and gets in, even encouraging engine revs well-looking scared, which is pretty masterful work, actually. Yeah, his little hand motion and everything, yeah. Jarrett jawbreakers Mongo, then pulls Mongo on top of himself for the three-count, eliminating himself. <laughs> While Mongo's confused, Jarrett flees with Deborah and the U.S. title. Now, 
me, I would have just run away for a countout. Why risk contact? <laughs> yeah. It is creative, at least. I guess maybe he figured if he ran away, they would chase him. Maybe. Yeah, I, I can see that. Whereas, like, aha, I've given Mongo a victory and confused him, so I'll yeah. be able to get away. And given that, in this case, it doesn't stop the match, they can't just ignore Malenko and go chase him down. Yeah. Still a curious choice, but it's somewhat understandable. Benoit and Mongo angrily attack Malenko, but he manages to pin Mongo and Benoit for two each and to try his Texas Cloverleaf on Benoit, who grabs the ropes. Tony asks if this is the first time, quote, in the history of our sport, <laughs> that someone betrayed their partner like Jarrett did. Getting that line in there. I don't think we've actually had that line of Tony's on any of our shows yet. True. Yeah, I can't imagine a tag partner betraying someone else. I mean, yeah. can you sting? Can you betray <laughs> anyone doing that to you? Yeah, I highly doubt that's the first time that someone even did what Jarrett did, frankly. No. Benoit counters a tombstone pile driver into his own and gets the swan dive headbutt, but tags Mongo. Heenan says they don't want to pin Malenko because they want to keep beating him up, but Mongo soon lands his tombstone pile driver for the three count and the win. Dusty criticizes Jarrett, who, quote, throwed him to the wolves. <laughs> Tony and Dusty say Jarrett sold Malenko a bill of goods and called Jarrett a backstabber and a homewrecker. Tony says all Jarrett did was walk in and walk out, and gets a great line. Malenko was in a wrestling match, and Jarrett was in a parade. <laughs> <laughs> Thoughts on this one? I thought it was a pretty good match, but obviously with the wrinkle. This whole idea, the whole Jarrett gets himself pinned, and it's a definitely a creative thing, as we discussed. It's also one of the things, if you do it like more than once in, like say, a year, it's too much. Mm -hmm. If you do it once, you're like, oh, that's a weird thing. Any repetition of that spot in a short amount of time looks really cheap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Other than the Jared stuff, it's mostly a squash match on Malenko because he's being double teamed mm -hmm. all the time. They give him some good host spots towards the end, like he said. He drop kicks them real quickly while they're sort of confused as what to do because Jared just left and did what he did. But otherwise, yeah, definitely not a good look. It's storyline from Malenko because he was, as they said, thrown to the wolves and left to get beaten up. <laughs> To this day, I still wonder why someone suggested, hey, what should we give this guy who's not really a trainee wrestler? I know, Tombstone Piledriver. <laughs> I know. I think it's just because he's really big, but yeah. And, and is it just me, or is it a little bit weird that they have Benoit and Malenko do a Tombstone Piledriver spot like 30 seconds before Mongo hits his as a finisher? Oh, yeah, that's true. It's it's a little bit weird, right? That like if you're in a match with a guy who does the tombstone pile driver as, as his finisher, the one move you should avoid doing before that point is the tombstone pile driver. Right. <laughs> like Scott Hall in his tag match we'll see later does his sort of quick short choke slam, but he's not doing it in a match with the giant. Right, yeah. So that's yeah, a big kind of thing. And and at least that one it's a different kind of choke slam. Yeah. Where with this, it's literally the tombstone pile driver. They literally the exact move that Mongo's going to do as his finisher. If you pulled that with The Undertaker, he would have killed you. <laughs> yeah. The only way that works is if you're doing it like the move theft thing. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a heelish thing to steal a good guy's move, or like thing that's under Flair a lot, where they'll use figure form to Flair. Right, yeah. If you're intentionally acknowledging it, fine, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it gets to the point where like matches nowadays where everyone does super kicks, but this super kick is more effective because reason. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this ended up more of a handicap match rather than a true tag match, with Malenko largely facing the horsemen alone. There was some minor sloppiness here and there, but it was pretty good overall. 
I'm going to disagree with you slightly. I actually think Malenko looked quite strong because he was able to fight for so long against two people. Mm. And Benoit and Mongo put on a brutal beatdown, but he kind of kept it going, kept enough hope throughout the match mm. that I think it didn't feel like a squash match to me. Okay. Also, if you're going to pick one guy to basically be a tag team unto himself, Malenko is a terrific choice. He has so much move variety and he can work well with just about anybody. Mm-hmm. I thought the match was well constructed to let the far less experienced Mongo look good, with Benoit managing much of the work for the horseman side, but the quick tags keeping Mongo constantly involved. Right. So it didn't feel like it's all Benoit and then Mongo just comes in for one or two spots. Mm-hmm. It felt like they're trading in and out. It's just if you really are paying attention, there's a lot more complexity in the Benoit side of the match. Yeah. But Mongo still looks really like a participating team member, which is right. there was some real artistry in, ma- in managing that considering how little experience he's got at this point. Right. Benoit and Malenka will do chain wrestling, and then Mongo will run in and get drop toehold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it, well, and, 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 do the, and do his slams. He'll do, he'll do his slams. He'll do you know big screaming punches in the corner or, or things. Point on that, by the way. Mongo was very lively and loud in this match. Yes. It was uh, very Luger-esque. <laughs> it was, yes. Jarrett's elimination did feel a little odd to me, but it was executed quite well. Jarrett was really careful, I noticed, to make sure when the ref starts counting, he actually does put his shoulders fully down, mm-hmm. which was a little hard because he also had to hold Mongo. Yeah. But he manages that spot expertly. Mm-hmm. And he did a great job building up his nervousness leading into it as well. For as little as Jarrett's involved, he was in contention for MVP for me tonight because mm-hmm. he just does a masterful job with this. Right. Overall, I enjoyed the match. And I thought it made Malenko actually look pretty impressive for standing up to the onslaught for so long. Yeah, I would say it's not like it was a one-sided squash necessarily, but just for me, it felt like a predetermined thing that's going to happen. Once he's on his own, he's clearly going to lose. Yeah, I I think he's definitely losing the match. I just think they don't just kill him off. No, you get a little little bit of fight him, yeah. Yeah. It's above, say, like a Joe Gomez squash match. (laughs) Yes. Unsurprisingly, this would lead to a singles match between Dean Malenko and Jeff Jarrett at Fall Brawl. Before that, we would hold the 35th Clash of Champions show, which would have a U.S. title match between Mongo and Jeff Jarrett, with Mongo winning his first title. Okay. Speaking of Mongo, at actual Fall Brawl, him and Benoit would enter War Games. (laughs) Tony throws to a video package of the WCW wrestlers making their road trip. We see the Steiners, DDP, and a few others, but it's a short package with a lot of quick cuts, so it's rather hard to really get much out of it this time. Nowhere near as good as last year's road trip video. Yeah, they show them like at the Mall of America and everything. Yeah, they got actually getting some talking from them and stuff yeah. last year. Where this one is just like, uh, yeah, cut together about fifteen twenty seconds of guys riding bikes. Yep, good. Let's go with it. Yeah. The other thing you get with these packages, you. See who's in them, then you also see who's not in them. It's kind of interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. Like, Hogan's not involved in any of this stuff, really. Admittedly, this is the WCW one, but yeah, I don't right. remember him being in the NW of yeah. Road Trip package either. But yeah, there's just people that just, because they're not, they're just not bike guys, which is fine. I'm obviously not a bike guy either, but like, it's just funny because it's like, look at our star, and then you see, like, Luger is absent for all of that because he's not a motorcycle guy. Mm-hmm. Hogan's not involved in any of that stuff. People like Nash are probably hard to find a bike for, he's so tall. Man, can you picture the size it would have to be? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and riding the bike the size of a semi-truck, Kevin Nash. <laughs> yeah. It is a tricky thing, because you show here's our big, tough, macho guys with motorcycles, then speakers by their absence, everyone not riding motorcycles. Yeah, yeah. I, I will give Hogan a, maybe a pass last year, because he just turned, and they only did a WCW guys video. None of the NWO guys are going to show up last year. I don't think any of them did. 
And then this year they did an NWA specific one, but it is very short. I don't think I saw Hogan in it for riding the bike, but that would, now that I think yeah. about it, I, I think I only saw like Bischoff and then maybe I think Jackwell, maybe? I don't remember, remember Bischoff in it. Yeah, so it's not like they did a full package. So maybe he did participate in it, I don't know. Yeah. But you know, at the very least, last year he has an excuse for mm-hmm. not being in it. Our fourth match is Lionheart, Chris Jericho, versus Alex Wright for Wright's WCW Cruiserweight Championship. Referee for this one is Mark Curtis. And this, again, is not WCW versus NWO, so there will be no change in the scores again on this one. So on the July 28th Nitro, Chris Jericho would defend his title, that is the Cruiserweight title, against Alex Wright, and unfortunately loses match that night, so he's lost his title. As such, we have the official mandatory rematch happening tonight. Okay. A little fun fact I discovered while doing research on these two. Chris Jericho's debut match on Nitro was against Alex Wright. Oh, interesting. Nitro 96. Did not realize that. Yeah. Mike Tenay joins the team again for this one. He reports on Mysterio's injury and says his knee's seriously injured. Tony says that could be the end of a wrestler's career. It feels a little bit odd for them to have such a somber discussion over Jericho's exuberant teen movie music and Wright's techno. <laughs> a bit, yeah. <laughs> Wright shows some actual personality as he's turned heel, and he gets to get angry at the crowd for a little bit. Despite that, a sign in the crowd proclaims him the man. I would assume he's beaten Flair, then. I understand that's the requirement. I believe that is the rule, yes. (laughs) A lady in the crowd shows off a spray-painted NWO logo on her uh, upper chest. Yes. Torso? Torso, we were saying. Some great entrance gear here. Jericho's Lionheart vest is very cool with a great multicolored lion on the back. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Wright's Circle and Arrows logo on the back of his jacket is somewhat confusing, but really neat. Mm-hmm. It's a cool design. I don't know what it means, but it's a cool design. Yeah, I can see that. In a funny moment, Curtis shows the title, but they don't cut to him quite in time, and he's starting to set it down. But clearly someone says something and gives kind of a, oh, and brings the title back up to show the camera so it can zoom in on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a Miss Q in WCW? But it's just, it's just a nice human moment yeah. from, from Curtis there that's really, you, you can see the brief confusion and then realizing what needs to happen and getting it done. Gotcha, yeah. <laughs> but yes, no, it's <laughs> unsurprising. <laughs> They're evenly matched, but Wright sneaks in a chop on a corner break, and Jericho angrily chases him and repeatedly knocks him down. Wright flees outside and waits for Jericho to turn his back, but Jericho catches him charging with a drop toe hold. They trade holds. Wright repeatedly using the hair. Curtis catches him, so Wright lets go, then slaps the hold back on. Jericho hits acrobatic strikes, including a cool backwards-spinning wheel kick, Mm -hmm. a springboard dropkick after dropping Wright on the ropes, and a springboard dive onto Wright outside. Wright sends him to the steps for what would have been a good 0.4 Cena. Yeah. If the steps weren't attached to the ring post. Yeah, they do some sort of zip tie or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jericho was robbed. I know. (laughs) Suplex by Wright and they brawl outside, repeatedly breaking the ref's count. I like that they remembered to do that, rather than just like brawling for eternity like a lot of people will do. Yeah, right. Back in, right up top, but Flair Karma flies international to Germany. <laughs> it did look like Wright jumped rather than getting thrown. He, he did, yeah. But he did get good hang time. Yeah. Jericho gets one counts with an arm drag and works an arm bar, even keeping the hold on through a slam. Wright won't give up, so he breaks and lands forearms, but oddly hesitates, and Tony says he's indecisive. Wright spinning leg lariat, and a weird sort of split stomp off the top. 
It looked more like he was expecting Jared to go to counter, but he did clearly hit the move. Yeah. <laughs> right European uppercuts, belly-to-back suplex, and he hesitates a bit as well before a beautiful top-rope arcing moonsault that Jericho dodges. Today says both guys have been indecisive and it cost them, and I wonder if that's what they were going for, or if he's just excellently covering for some awkwardness. Yeah. There were some weird pauses. It, it is, yeah. Yeah. They'll hit a move and let the guy recover, as I say, stop letting him recover, yeah. Yeah, but, but I mean, there's some points where it's not even them hitting move, it's like Jericho will do his forearms and Wright won't be down or anything, but he'll kind of like look around for a moment and then decide to do a move. Yeah. So it feels like they aren't quite on the same page at times. And Yeah, I would agree with that. Jericho fires up and builds to the lion salt. Tony calls it an Asaki moonsault. Did he mean Asai? I hope so. I, I tried looking up Asaki moonsault and got a Google safe search warning. Oh. So I'm going to just say lion salt. <laughs> <laughs> Jericho gets two counts off a senton and a powerbomb, and he keeps the hold and hits a second powerbomb, but again walks away before finally pinning for a two. He goes up top, but Wright hits the ropes and Jericho crotches himself. Right superplex for two, Jericho roll up on a right German suplex for two, and Jericho side suplex for two. Jericho goes up and over on a corner whip and rolls right up, but Wright keeps the roll going and pulls the tights for the three count and the win. Tanay nicely discusses the advantage that Wright's greater height gave him on that final roll through, and Tony knows the tights helped a bit too. Wright tries to dance with his title, but his back is owie. I love it. <laughs> that was his best moment. That, that, that was a great, great moment. Yeah, yeah agreed. Thoughts on this one? Uh, it was a really competitive match, which I liked. Like the matches were this good back and forth. Because unlike previous matches, we already had the prolonged injury angle match. You know what? Two meals on one show, I feel, make the show drag a bit. Mm-hmm. And it's less inciting to see it the third time or fourth time and so on. Right. They had a pretty good pace as well, I thought. Even though they're the bigger cruiserweights. They're at 220, and the weight limit is 225. Yeah. They still kept the pace well. If nothing else, if I, you know, we can talk about his lack of personality so often with Alex Wright, which thankfully somewhat dealt with here. He's very consistent. Y- yes. Yeah. Very consistent, and his, his pace is really good as well. I, yeah, to be clear, I've never had a problem with Alex Wright. He is a good in-ring performer. I just feel like for a lot of his career, he doesn't have a gimmick that lets him express a personality. Mm-hmm. And get that other side, but they also never made him a Dean Malenko. Yes. They never made him the, his gimmick is that he has no gimmick. Right. Which might have done something with it. But here he actually shows he can have a personality. Yeah. Like Brad Armstrong had that issue as well. Right. Yeah. As good as a former was, he was really good. He never gave him that extra thing that would make you care about him other than watching his match and want to see him win. Yeah. His biggest character moment was having an America jacket, which I yeah. will always love him for, but. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's similar. Yeah, it's definitely a similarity there. Yeah, for the first part, I thought they worked together really well. As you said, there's definitely some odd miscue things here. Like, they don't know like, what the next spot's going to be, or like one of them move ahead or one of them move behind. I'm not sure. Yeah, I feel like maybe there's a point where they maybe lose a spot, don't remember what the next spot is, and one of them has to be reminded, mm-hmm. or where they're trying to call it in the ring and someone just doesn't hear. Yeah, I think from what I recall from reading couple of his books, Jericho is much more of a call-in-the-ring kind of guy. So I could see that being an issue if he's calling match one way, and Alex Wright, who's a lot more European wrestling, maybe doesn't call everything the same way and react the same way. Yeah. Yeah, or like I said, just if it's, you know, you're calling the next spot while the guy's doing forearm strikes rather than a hold, that's one of the points where there's this, this weird pause. 
And it could just be that you have to say, wait, what was that? <laughs> so you get that little unnatural pause in the fight a, a couple times. Yeah. It's not a major factor. But- it's enough that the commentators mentioned it, which is right, why yeah. it's worth which, mentioning. Which Tanae does a, a good job of, I think, covering for it there by bringing it into the match story instead of leaving it awkward. Right. And that their youth is in our aspect as well. Yeah. But other than the timing issues, I thought this was a pretty good match. Yeah, I agree. I thought this was quite a nice little match. Jericho played a good, fired-up babyface to write surprisingly good, sneaky, and cowardly heel. I am not used to write having a personality. <laughs> they both pulled off a nice combination of hard strikes and good acrobatics, with a few nice power moves from Jericho as well. That double power bomb spot is beautiful. Yeah. But yeah, as we said, at the same time, there's a few bits of just little odd hesitation moments. Not quite full miscommunication, but I just didn't feel like they were always clicking. Still, there's a lot of fun moments to this, and both brought out some intensity as the match went on. So on net, it's a fun watch. Mm. Just maybe not quite as smoothly paced as I'd expected from these two. Yeah. Think about Jericho, but I'm going to run my notes again. It doesn't quite gel for me. Okay, so at this point, you know, he, he's like a little Lionheart Chris Jericho. He hasn't turned heel yet. Right. So he's Lionheart, and his finisher is the Lion Tamer. Well, it's the same thing. Like, when he eventually comes to the WWE... He is named Chris Jericho. His finisher is the Walls of Jericho, which are famous for falling down. Right. <laughs> so it's it, he, he, he does a bad job naming his finishers. Yeah, I guess that's the thing, yeah. <laughs> the Codebreaker at least kind of stuck, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. And like, it, Walls of Jericho, don't get me wrong, that makes sense as a move name. Yeah, yeah. And it makes sense for the move type he's doing, that it's visually accurate. But <laughs> it is just funny that you're like, the entire biblical story there is about the Walls of Jericho being broken. So maybe it's no wonder that a lot of people escape your finisher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I could see that, yeah. <laughs> I think this is a better example of him overcoming it, but early Jericho, and he said it himself, they said your character is just you're young and excited and a good guy with who says rock and roll stuff. It didn't quite work as well. Yeah. He at least has a good partner here, and the crowd is very much anti-right with his neon tights and everything, and being German is probably a factor as well. Other than the guys, obviously, with the Iron Cross stuff on the jacket, they might associate <laughs> they might, with, yeah. They might be fans of his, but, you know, in general, him as a face is not that great, and which is why he self really wanted to come heal, and he really embraced that. Mm-hmm. At least, thankfully, like I said, this is at least a better gelling of that. Yeah, I think Jericho does a perfectly good job as a face, but, yeah, he clearly does his best work once he's turned heel. And then from there on, even if he's a face, he kind of like brings in that personality yeah. that he didn't quite have. I think what it is, is when he's first running as a face, he doesn't feel free to joke around. Yes. Once he's turned heel, he gets that jokey personality again. Yeah, he's right to the I want you to want me. Yeah, and the, and his bit where he's introducing all the luchadors for the yeah. Cruiserweight title, Battle Royale and stuff. You know, he does that kind of stuff. And then once he turns face again later, he's willing to still do that kind of thing and be the sarcastic, fun-loving face yeah. that I think works better. So he, he never like goes back to generic, young, fired-up baby face. True. He keeps that persona. I imagine, it too, it's probably a, something that happened from where he started out as well. Mm-hmm. Because he worked a lot in Japan, for instance. They're much more of a work rate is the thing that matters. Obviously, this guy's with personality and show in this, but it's much more about what moves can you do and how can you work this together. Right, yeah. He obviously did a lot of work in Mexico, which we got the Lionheart thing. And again, that's much more of a do a cool flip, do a pin and everything yeah. situation. It's really once he gets to here, and he realizes, I've got, I've got to adapt. Because mm-hmm. here's the NWO, and they're the cool heels everyone loves. And here's me just 
going, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. On WCW Saturday night, which would be taped three days later, Jericho would win the title back. Jeez. It would officially air on the 16th, so it's at least a week out from this. But yeah, they taped it three days later to tip in advance. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get that. Like, if you're going to have the previous champion win the title back anyway, why don't you do that on your pay-per-view? Mm-hmm. Why have him lose his rematch on the pay-per-view and then just win it back? Yeah. For all the criticism that we're going to do about a certain other moment later in the show, yeah. I'm sure. Yes. The title change happens on the dang pay-per-view. <laughs> Correct, yes. There's some of them where they, they do it on Clash of Champions show. That's a little bit more forgivable. Right, because it's, it's meant to draw people. But even so, there should be a longer break if you're going to do that. I don't so much have a problem with the champion winning the title back, or even the champion winning the title back on a TV show. I have a problem with the champion winning a title back on the TV show a week after the pay-per-view where he failed to win the title back. Correct. Do it like another two months down the line, they have another match. Exactly. There, there you go. You know, that's fine. As for Jericho, he'd be challenged for these title both at the Clash of Champions and at Fall Brawl by Eddie Guerrero. Okay. But wait, there's more. Okay. One reason for this sudden abrupt title change is we're going to bring another title to the story. At the same Clash of Champions, Alex Wright would challenge the Ultimo Dragon for his WWTV title. Oh, okay. And win it there. All right. So Alex Wright would leave Road Wild as Cruiserweight Champion, lose his title, and gain the TV title before that fit review. <laughs> All right. Sure. So that's how we have Eddie Guerrero and Chris Jericho for the Cruiserweight title, and Alex Wright and Ultimate Dragon for the TV title a month after the show. Okay. All right. Fair enough. A little convoluted, but you get there. <laughs> we get some shots of the rally, and Tony spots an ambulance rounding a corner with lights going and suggests they're coming for Heenan. Not sure I would joke about an ambulance, honestly. <laughs> That's a little weird, yeah. Yeah. A dude with giant sunglasses and what looks like a Charles Manson t-shirt is in one of the shots, and I'm almost sure he was at last year's show, too. I think I recall that guy. Yeah. yeah. Our fifth match is Six versus the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. Referee for this one is Scott Dickinson. Yeah, so ironically, Six is in the fifth match. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. And we're back to NWO versus WCW matches. <laughs> Six, a.k.a. Sean Waltman, a.k.a. One, two, three, kid, or the kid, or pick a number. I think it was Lightning Kid at one point as well. He's a million different kids, which is a weird thing to say. Ah, uh, <laughs> this. He is thus named Six because he is the sixth person during the group. And also because one plus two plus three. Yes. <laughs> Although not 12 plus three. No. <laughs> that would be 15. Yeah. Which would be a kind of weird thing to name a wrestler, but then again, so is six. Yeah. Because it works multiplication-wise as well, because one times two times three still works. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, so he's the sixth person doing after Trillionaire Ted and the Giant, because that was the thing they had to do. Yeah. The idea is that he's the young upstart member of the group. You know, they're all upstart, but he's the more upstarty, I guess. And yes, upstarty is now a word thing. <laughs> I, I, I guess so. We'll, we'll declare it such. Yes. They're really getting pushed in this idea of tradition against disrespect. So he's very vocal and making fun of Flair. There's a bit where he attacks Flair during a tag match, and I think he's trying to yank him off the apron. He's waiting for a tag against Mr. Perfect, but he like basically yanks the back of his tights down, <laughs> which is like apparently the one time Flair didn't want someone to do that. <laughs> which supposedly almost got him fired, which was interesting. Cause wow. It happened on TNT. Oh, And just yanked okay. it right down. Yeah. 
they're also building up this angle of who's going to be the new Horseman member, because officially Arn is now out for good. Mm-hmm. They're teasing for a bit that's going to be Kurt Hennig, and at one point he comes out to announce it, and then Six comes out and makes fun of him some more, and they attack him. They also built the idea that Six has his move called the Buzz Killer, which is some sort of just arm lock where he pulls the arm behind you, sort of like a hammer lock, some sort of hammer lock choke thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. And as you recall, Flair is back from six months out with his shoulder messed up. So they're building up the idea that, kind of like with Ray, to a much, much lesser extent, the question is, is he recovered from that attack? Yeah, especially when this guy has a move that will attack that exact body part. Yes. NWO theme count, one. <laughs> it begins. As the theme plays, we cut to a shot of Sturgis Mayor Clifford Lynn. Don't worry, he hasn't joined the NWO. As Six enters, Tony recaps the score so far. It's one-to-one, and builds this up as a match of youth versus experience. Flair's out next in a very nice blue and silver robe. One dude in the crowd gives a thumbs down, but the rest of them are making the horseman sign, so Flair remains popular with the crowd, despite Six looking more biker. That's true, yeah. Six suggests that he's going to throw Flair out like trash, but Flair responds with a smile and, Woo! (laughs) Six hits a shoulder block, doing crotch chops, and Dusty says he's tripping the light Fandango. (laughs) Huh? (laughs) Flair pulls the hair to take Six down and out-wrestles him, and Six spills outside on a missed corner splash. Keenan notes the NWO is not out with Six, and suggests that they're working on plans for the later title matches. Back in, Flair chops Six, and he gives a wonderful pained expression. I remember him doing that quite well at, I think, Slambury 1997 as well, where he really sells the chops. He does, yeah. (laughs) Flair mocks the crotch chops. On a hip-toss counter sequence, Six hooks his leg around Flair's neck, but Flair flips him backwards and chops him down. What was Six going for there? I guess, like, the rocker dropper, maybe? Uh, Yeah, I guess. Not clear. Flair pokes the eyes and lands strikes, but Six catches him with a spin kick, though Flair weirdly falls in the direction it came from. Yes. Which looks a little strange. A bit, yes. Six wears Flair down with leg drop, chops, and martial arts kicks, then hits the Bronco Buster. Heenan calls it embarrassing. I agree. Yes. <laughs> Tony says it works the shoulder, and Flair has a prior injury there, but there's got to be less suggestive ways of doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tony also mixes up Six and Sting. Admittedly, with Flair in there, Sting is kind of top of mind. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> A little bit more forgivable. (laughs) Sure. Six hits more kicks, and one to the face seems like it might have caught Flair legit, as he gives a very strong reaction. He really sells that one, yeah. I'm not sure if that's legit or just him really trying to make sex look strong. You can see him kind of like nursing his jaw a bit afterwards, but again, it could just be him selling really generously. But it just seems like such a strong reaction and such a sudden reaction. Mm -hmm. It's not like the, I got hit, think about it for a second, that's how I should react. It's a, ah, you know? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Six gets two with a top rope guillotine leg drop, and the trade strikes until Six hits, if we're being generous, a spinning wheel kick for two. It clearly goes high, and Flair has to raise his arms to catch it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Heenan oddly praises Six's total lack of disrespect for Flair. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) I think he meant total lack of respect, but I'm not sure. I think that's the idea, yeah. Chin lock. But Flair's arm stays up, presumably, as we cut to a really wide shot and couldn't actually see. (laughs) Somewhere in space, you can guess. Six whips Flair to the corner for a Flair flip, but Flair knocks him flat. Flair shinbreaker, but Six hits an enziguri. 
Flair dodges a top rope flipping Senton and hits Six's knee, then tries the figure four. Six gets the ropes, and Flair holds on for a bit, breaking out the four count, and gives a woo! <laughs> Six backflips out of a back suplex and tries the Bud's killer, but Flair backs hard into the turnbuckle to escape. Exhausted, though, he falls into the corner, so Six tries for the Bronco Buster again. But Flair gets a boot up into the <clears throat> midsection. Mm, yeah. Flair pins him with his feet on the ropes for the three count and the win. WCW 2, NWO 1. Tony sells it as Flair being one step ahead, a veteran anticipating his opponent's move. Heenan celebrates Flair as the dirtiest player in the game. Tony builds up the chance that this could be the night the NWO ends, and then claims the crowd is 20,000 strong. (laughs) That would make this one of the biggest crowds we've yet seen, so (laughs) yeah, probably not. It seems unlikely, yeah. Thoughts on this one? I thought this was a pretty good clash of styles. Again, as we've discussed many times throughout the show, Flair is Ric Flair. Even in his later days, he's really good at putting Guy over. Mm-hmm. That's a guess thing. It's a good thing to be. Right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, outside of the, the one where we're not sure it's like selling or not, like we discussed, he really sells the kicks and strikes well. Mm-hmm. He also sets Six up to do a lot of stuff. Like, he has a bit where he keeps hitting Six and he keeps doing the nip-ups when he's holding his arm. Right. So he did a lot of stuff to really build up this guy, which is nice. Yeah, I think like with the Guerrero match last year, we were seeing that Flair takes the time to learn what the guy's important spots are and lets the guy get him in. Mm -hmm. Like you said, really generous performance, I think, to make an opponent look good and help kind of build up the younger stars. Right. It's one of those things that some people just seem to forget or just not think about, which is that if you build up the guy you're fighting and then beat him, you look stronger. For- exactly, yeah. You look yeah. stronger for beating this guy that seems so insurmountable two minutes ago. Yep, and that's something that we've mentioned several times that Flair clearly understands, like even in his promos, that he will talk up his opponent a great deal. Yes, exactly. Even even after the match, he'll say, you know, how good a wrestler that guy is, how he's one of the best. Yes. And then he'll, if he's in heel mode, say, and I beat him. But, you know, he gets that. He gets that, that if you make the other guy look good, you actually look good too. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because they don't have Flair win in his usual way, like, you know, like, and then like a surprise roll-up, or, you know, the very rare tap-out or lay your shoulder down for the figure four spot. Instead, it's a counter and then cheap pin. So it seems like he's trying to set up a future match with Six. Mm-hmm. So it's not like a definitive, hey, just beat this guy. There's no point in going on with this anymore, which is a nice thing as well. Yeah, and it suits the storyline that the commentators were selling throughout the match of Flair being such a veteran that he can anticipate your moves. Exactly. That's how he beats him. He beats him uh, by anticipating a move. Yeah. So part of me would like a more clear finish, but at the same time, I get the idea they're going for with this. Mm-hmm. But I think it works. Yeah, I thought, like you said, Flair, again, did a really nice job building up his opponent, as Six got to look quite strong despite a loss here. He clearly wore Flair down over the course of the match, and he largely looked dominant for big portions of it with his very nice kicks. And they told a story of Flair's experience being what made a difference, as it was able to lure Six into things or as Tony noted, anticipate his moves to counter when it matters most. That said, there were some surprisingly awkward or sloppy spots at points here. It wasn't quite as smooth as I'm used to for Flair, and there was more than a little bit of repetition as well. Mm. It seemed to be a theme to some extent tonight. Still, it's a fun match with some good storytelling, but maybe could have trimmed a little bit of fluff. I can kind of see that, yeah. It's one of those things, a youthful guy like Six at that point, Maybe he has so many things he wants to do and thinks he got to work this and this and this and then a match. And Flair is often very agreeable, I would say. At the same time, maybe 
could be more decisive. No, we've already done this thing before. Don't do it again or something like that. Yeah, and to be fair, it's not like it gets super duper repetitive or anything. I just feel like trim it minute, minute and a half off of it or something like that, and, and you have a, just a little bit tighter match. Right, like for instance, Six has really strong kicks. Obviously, it's this thing, but it's kind of always the same kick. Mm-hmm. It's always that same spin kick. He doesn't do like low kicks or attack the leg or anything. Yeah, He has the one kind of kick thing he does. You want to take Booker T, who does his jumping kicks and his straight kicks and all these variations you can do with it. Mm-hmm. You get more of that than you with six at this point in his career. Yeah, good match overall, I would say. Yeah, I agree. So following this, both of them would be in war games on opposite sides, obviously, uh, when the effective teams in that match. Okay. Tony says, next up will be a personal score between athletes, so not an NWO versus WCW match. More shots of Sturgis, and Tony talks up the rally a bit, and he builds up the next match and Hennig and DDP's feud, explaining how both are great fighters, but until now have been content to ambush each other, only now facing off for real. So our sixth match is Kurt Hennig versus Diamond Dallas Page with Kimberly Page. Referee for this one is Mark Curtis. Kurt Hennig, as a big name, obviously, from the WWF, even though they can't call him the perfect, they can still call him by his actual name. He's basically in this middle point where the horsemen are trying to recruit him because he's his great name, and the NWO, of course, want him because he's his big name. It would be a, another blow against WCW if they could pull him away from them and use him to take the company down. Mm-hmm. So that leads to the pre-pay-per-view Bash the Beach, where he was brought in by DDP as a tag partner against NWO. Unfortunately, it had a bit of a miscue which led to Hennig attacking DDP and leaving him to be taken out by his opponents. Ever since then, there's been bad blood, and as noted in that comment before, they've been attacking each other from behind, and now we're getting the direct match between these two. Okay. I think that's one of the actual interesting things about the NWO angle, actually, um, to go back to the counteroffers of Hennig recruitment. Mm-hmm. It's not just about tradition versus chaos or you know tradition versus disrespect or things like that. It's about specifically about trying to corrupt tradition. Yes. That you have things like the defacing of the title belt. You have them trying to bring in some of the biggest tradition faces. Right. Like Hogan, like Hennig, like their appeals to Sting to join them and, and that sort of stuff to specifically turn them against the forces that are trying to defend the traditional company and, and mm-hmm. traditional wrestling and all. That's an interesting like side note that's not just them being new upstarts like the new blood later is yes it's them specifically trying to turn tradition against itself yeah there's definitely a part of the angle as well where it's bringing in people that aren't really associated with wcw like hennig Mm -hmm. hogan up until obviously he showed up the first time you know holland nash they debut as part of the interview against them right they're bringing a lot of people in like ted dibiase is the same thing ted my knowledge and i wrestled for wcw until he appears as the manager mm-hmm. and the backer of the NWO, which is the thing they pushed early on before the whole lawsuit thing about whether or not Hall and Nash were really... Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're characters from the other company. We get the license plate graphics again, but seriously, how did they not put a diamond logo on pages? Right? <laughs> as Hennig enters to wild guitar music, tossing a towel in the air and catching it, Heenan predicts that he'll be the winner as he is currently undefeated in WCW. Dusty says Paige will not be intimidated, and Heenan agrees the Diamond Cutter could make this unpredictable. A sign in the crowd shows the Diamond Cutter symbol and challenges, Kurt, snap into this. 
you do realize that's Macho Man's catchphrase, not DDP's, right? Yeah, I mean, are you going to snap into a diamond? That sounds very painful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not good for your teeth. And practical, something else. Paige and Kimberly are out next, and Dusty and Heenan build up the hard work that Paige has done to make his way to the top. Hennig yells at Paige, and Paige chases him around ringside, but Hennig ducks in and repeatedly blocks Paige from getting in. Paige smiles and nods, but eventually gets annoyed, and grabs Hennig, dragging him outside for some punches. Back in, Hennig pulls the hair, and Paige throws him in the corner, bears his chest, and lands vicious chops and wins the slugfest. Paige flings Hennig around by the hair. <laughs> Them Goldilocks hair was just a spinning around, Dusty proclaims. <laughs> Love Dusty. What stories is he reading? <laughs> Paige pulls Hennig crotch first into the ring post, but when he gets back in, Hennig pokes his eyes. Collapsing, Paige pulls down Hennig's singlet. Luckily, he's wearing tights underneath. Yeah. Paige lands heavy strikes, but when he goes up top, Hennig hits the rope to crotch him, then uses his towel to drag him down and hang him from the ring by the neck. Curtis threatens a DQ, so Hennig stops. Hennig lands strikes, a neckbreaker, and choking, and earns two with his feet on the ropes off a back elbow. Hennig's unusual neckbreaker with his legs gets a big reaction from Heenan. He kind of like puts Paige's head between his legs and just like twists. Yeah. It's a really interesting variant. Yeah, yeah, it's a, not sure what to call that one, yeah. Hennig works the leg with knee drops and a spinning toehold. Paige does an odd spin on a whip. Maybe he's selling the leg, I'm not sure. Kind of like gets whipped out the ropes, then like pauses, spins around, and then bounces off the ropes anyway. Yeah, I thought that was a little weird too, yeah. <laughs> Hennig's sleeper, but Paige jawbreaker's free. Paige crucifix pin into a sit-out for two. It looks like he briefly slipped, but thought fast and turned it into a different hold. It's an impressive work. It was, yeah, for a guy his size too. Hennig earns two with a lariat and a flipping pin, but Paige hits his spinning lariat for two, but lands on Curtis on the kickout, so Curtis sit out cold. Hennig exposes a turnbuckle bolt and smashes Paige into it, then backs away before Curtis wakes up. Paige is bleeding and barely conscious, so Hennig drags him to his feet for the Hennigplex. For two. Hennig batters Paige down, but Paige blocks another turnbuckle bolt smash and sends Hennig into it instead. Paige accidentally knocks Curtis down again with Hennig's foot on a kind of pile driver face buster. Yeah. I don't know what that's actually called. It's almost like the Styles Koshkai move, but not the full. Rotation on that. Yeah. yeah. Flair appears in a Gold's Gym shirt <laughs> and jumps at Paige, but Paige slugs him and hits the diamond cutter. As he rolls Flair out, though, Hennig hits the Henning Plex to Paige just as Curtis recovers for the three count and the win. Hennig flees outside as the commentators wonder whether that means that Hennig actually is a horseman rather than a free agent, as he's claimed. Thoughts on this one? I thought it was a pretty good match. Obviously, these two are professionals. Obviously, DDP hasn't been wrestling as long, but he's been around wrestling. Picked a lot of that stuff up. I will say, at this point with Hennig, as good as he is, technically sound as he is, and his timing is really well, obviously, you don't really lose that. He's a lot more punch-kicky than he used to be. Unless I don't misremembering his WWF matches. Because mm-hmm. it's not like he doesn't do technical moves anymore. It's not like, say, Dick Slater, before he just stops doing holds. He just punches you. He definitely has a lot more than I feel like he used to. Like, he'll he'll mix in a suplex or, like, a neck breaker, but it's a lot of just punches and back elbows. Mm-hmm. That might just be a thing that was happening in wrestling at the time, to be fair, and just him adapting. And in this match in particular, they might be using that as a way of building up the aggressiveness of the fight. Sure. 
Yeah, it's one thing. It's not bad to use punches in matches, but at the point when that's all you have, that's when it looks bad. Mm-hmm. They don't quite get that level over here, I thought. I have a problem with the ending, because there's a lot of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Hennig exposes the turnbuckle and throws DDP into it. The director doesn't see the throw, but he does see the turnbuckle exposed, and he sees the guy bleeding everywhere all over his head. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't question it. Just happened. Yeah. You know. I do like that Hennig backs away to the other corner, though, so he's yeah. nowhere near it. So the ref can't prove at the very least right. that he did anything. I will give him that. That's a nice touch. I do like that he cockily and slowly builds up to doing the Hennig plex or the perfect flex they can't mm-hmm. call it anymore. So it allows the kick out to make sense without killing the move. But then, so following that, Hennig takes a terminal bump himself, which doesn't appear to knock him out. At least not nearly the same level as knocked out DP. Yeah, yeah. He also does his, his interesting version, which is instead of like being thrown at it, he dumps like the second rope so he can hit it and do a little and thumb- do like a backflip off. Yeah, yeah, there's a little somersault away. <laughs> Again, at this point, his timing is still good, so he can cover that. But it's definitely an odd look when you see DDP just go straight at, at it like <laughs> that. He's not completely knocked out by that. He basically recovers within what a minute. Do you do distractions? I think the idea is the distraction helps DDP. It's like, hey, look, I could have beat him with this, but, you know, Flair ran this and that. But there's so much going on with this ending. It's over-complicated yeah. and overbooked. And it's just, okay, so I can kick out of the Hennigplex right after taking a big blow to the head. But I can't, after I recovered... I had the exact same problem <laughs> with it, yeah. There's so many things that's so close to being really good, but it's just too many things that don't quite come together. Yeah, it's... Page is able to kick out at two, even though he's barely conscious when the move's being put on him. Yeah. And, you know, has, has taken a serious head trauma. Yeah, he gets a good, like, 10 second recovery. But then, but then at the end of, end of the match, Hennig basically holds him down for, like, a six or a nine count while that, the ref recovers. That's the other thing. Yeah, I mentioned, yeah, the ref is in, like, right away there. Ref has to roll over a count. Yeah, yeah. It's a slow get to the three count. You know, so it ends up like a six or a nine count, and he still can't kick out of this move that he could kick out of when he was barely conscious mm-hmm. earlier in the match. Yeah, it's it's such a weird contrast. It was such a weird contrast that I actually looked to see, like, does Hennig do a cocky or pin the first time or something? But no, no, he does the pin the exact same way both times. And it did like a ball shot or something else to explain why he's weakened down. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. It'd be one thing if Flair's attack on Paige had worked. Yes. But it doesn't. He totally counters it and Diamond Cutter's Flair. There's nothing to explain why this suddenly works so much better on him. Also, did we need two ref bumps in one match? Apparently we did. (laughs) (laughs) I thought this match, again, was a little bit sloppier at times than I would have expected, especially from Hennig and Page. But it had some very fun, creative spots by both, and very little downtime. Mm -hmm. The story was interesting, too. Uh, Page tried to go cheat for cheat with Hennig at first, demonstrating that he knew the tricks. But Hennig did prove better at it, so Page had to revert to his underdog babyface role that he did so well. Yeah, see that. But yeah, I, my major complaint is just the ending, that it doesn't make sense why the Hennigplex works so well the second time when he kicks out of it while he's barely conscious at first. It just felt like the match ended because it was time to end, not because it made logical sense to end that way. Yeah, if they could have reversed it somehow, do mm-hmm. it where he gets Hennigplex and DP kicks out, which makes DP look really strong when kicking out of his move normally. Yeah. Then takes the, the blow to the head and, and the cocky pin. Yeah, Flair distracts him, Hennig slams him into the turnbuckle, does the Hennigplex win. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally fine then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they got it backwards. Exactly, yeah. Still, up to that point, I thought it was one of the night's better matches, honestly. It's not like the ending ruins it. No. Agreed. 
Hennig would finally officially be recruited to join the Horsemen after Arn's retirement, which is a really great segment on Nitro when he finally, his whole speech and everything, which is very much ruined by the NWO mocking it, the next show with zero reprisal. For some reason, they decided the Horsemen wouldn't be allowed to interrupt it even at the end of the segment, apparently. Just goes off, they just calmly walk away and leave, and the Horsemen are like, well, got us that time, (laughs) apparently. So that leads to the match I've been hinting at before, which is the NWO versus the Horsemen war games at Fall Brawl. So Hennig is officially the fourth person for that match, taking Arn's would-be spot in that match. Okay. As for DP, he would be put in a tag match against Scott Hall and Ray Savage at Fall Brawl. Okay. Tony throws to Mean Gene, who shills the hotline's news about Raven and Stevie Richards, and notes that they'll have results from this show soon after it's done. If, I, if I'm hearing that, though, I'm watching Road Wild 1997, so why would I call for the results to the show I just saw? Are you assuming I'm going to fall asleep at some point? <laughs> yeah, right? That expresses very little confidence in your show. <laughs> All I could figure is maybe, just maybe, they play his stuff on like the website. Maybe, yeah. And so you, you aren't watching the show, but yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It makes sense. 1-900-909-9900. <laughs> he throws to an ad for Fall Brawl, featuring War Games. What is anger? What is rage? What if we locked it up with eight men trapped in a 40 by 20 steel cage? Oh, hell's gonna break loose! It's time for rage in the cage! WCW's Fall Brawl. Sunday, September 14th, live and only on pay-per-view. Call your cable or satellite company to order now. The ad features a lot of wrestlers who are unlikely to ever end up in the War Games match, fighting in a cage. Mm. I think I caught sight of the public enemy, Scotty Riggs, and I'm pretty sure Robbie Rage of High Voltage is the guy yelling about rage in the cage at the end. Yeah. Kenny's in there as well. He might be as well. I'm not sure I care. (laughs) Yeah. Fair enough. The Fall Brawl is kind of weird because it has this odd lighting to it, and like someone joked about it looking like Joel Schumacher directed it. Like, I got, a, <laughs> I got a Batman. I know exactly thing. what you're talking about. That's, that's that's such a great visual imagery there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a shame we uh, we don't ever get a proper war game with teams like Public Enemy in there. Is it? Yeah, I think so. We then cut to an NWO promo featuring Eric Bischoff and Jimi Hendrix's Voodoo Child intermixed with the NWO theme. So, NWO theme count, two. <laughs> Luger, you are going to pay. You're going to pay a very, very dear price. Not much to the promo here, but I did like the Luger selling segment. Mm-hmm. I know the point was to show Hogan beating Luger up to build tension for the match, but I like to think that even the NWO promo producers love Luger selling. Yeah, right. We get some NWO road trip shots too, which was a nice way to get the show theme into this, but there's not much more to that than the WCW road trip video earlier. True. Kind of unnecessary, to be honest. It's 
funny that they get an NWO like promo package and it's all Bischoff. Yeah. I think he's a bad promo, but it's like of all the people, we get, there's no one else could do a promo. It just feels kind of slapped together. Oh crap, we need someone from the NWO to talk. Who's available? Uh, Bischoff. Yeah, yeah. Does he have a match? No. Is he going to show up elsewhere on the show? No. Yeah, because having Hogan like brag about how he's going to make Luger pay with the video of him beating up Luger kept from their match at four would actually make more sense. Right. It looks like Hogan is afraid of Luger, which, you know, in storyline he is, mm-hmm. but he's not even willing to like taunt him in a video package. Right. Like he's that scared of him. <laughs> it's like you either need to have him talk or have a suggestion of why he's not talking, and neither of those things is. Yeah. Is done. You could have, like, you know, going back to where they shot the really convoluted NWO promo, they chopped down, you know, an hour into oh two God. minutes. Like, have Hogan, like, stewing in the background, like, angrily walking around in Bischoff's taunting. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that would work fine. Yeah. We get more shots of Sturgis as the sun begins to set, and Tony builds up the three remaining matches, all of them WCW versus NWO. So our seventh match is the Macho Man, Randy Savage, with Elizabeth versus the Giant. Referee for this one is Mickey J. So since we last left these people, Savage has fought the NWO for a long time and then yeah, decided to join them, as a lot of people do with this company and this organization. Yeah, you screwed me out of the world title like six times and beat me up and left me for dead, but now I'll join you because, you know, I seem like nice guys. Well, if you can't beat them, join them. I guess and so. If you can't beat him and can't beat him and can't beat him and can't beat him and can't beat him, I guess definitely join him. Yeah, at <laughs> certain point, why not? <laughs> Likewise, as mentioned in the wrap-up on Hogwild, Giant also joined the NBO after they screwed him of his title, because money was the explanation they gave for that. Yes. So Giant joined the group that stole his title, beat him up, and then eventually down the line, he wins a world title shot, and when he wants to actually use it to fight Hogan, they beat him and kick him out of the group. So now he's a good guy because the guys that he joined betraying his teammates betrayed him, so he's back with his teammates. At, at least by this point, he's done some genuine good guy things, like yeah. giving up his title shot for Luger. Correct. He may not start on an actual redemption arc, but he gets there, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things, it's different for us covering it, so we're going from one show to the next year. Where you're watching it straight through, yeah, obviously he's been yeah. betrayed by them. You understand why he's a face, but yes, it's just kind of funny. Between shows... He's coming back, and they kicked out of that group. Yeah, that he joined. starting the uh, tradition of the big show turning face or heel at least twice a year. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Savage, at this point, they're really pushing the crazy aspect of his character. Like, he's been driven so mad by being, you know, pummeled and beaten up by Ric Flair before this whole thing started, and then fighting Anthony Wo. He's the pure madness at this point. I guess he's only crazy enough to fight the Giant, who definitely is against Anthony Wo. Okay. Oh, and in the build-up on Nitros, we got a tease of a match between the Great Muda, who at this point is part of NWO Japan, and the Giant. They tease it because he started a match and he dismissed them and to beat him up, but then they have an actual match the following week. Okay. So he's not on the show, but Muda does appear in the build of this, hmm. which is kind of nice. NWO theme count, three. As Macho enters, Tony reflects on what happened to Giant here last year and says that tonight, his match might not be for the world title, but it's still a very important match for WCW. Giant enters, and his new theme song is absolutely amazing, the greatest wrestling theme ever. Uh Uh-huh. Or it will be if anyone ever writes one for him. Yes. (laughs) Tony talks about Giant's respect for the title, and how when Luger got the big gold belt back for WCW, Giant was the one who worked to clean off the NWO graffiti. 
The engines rev as Giant gets in, and Savage flees outside. When Giant turns away, Savage charges in, knee strikes him, and tries a slam, but Giant falls on top, for zero, as he gets right off. Tony says he doesn't want to win that way. Giant beats the crap out of Savage, with stomps, elbows, a big slap, kicks, and a knee-based neck wrench similar to Hennig's. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird move to see twice. On that yeah, right? with his, he just sort of jumps a little bit. Yeah, and like the not quite the same move, yeah. but just the similarity is, is funny for a move that I don't think I've ever seen before. Yeah, I, I would assume he's trained unofficially by Hennig, or to some degree, as a youngster and with things a veteran. Maybe that's sort of carried over from Maybe. that. <laughs> Giant tears Savage's shirt and lands forearms, and Savage rolls out. One tattered sleeve is still on. Yes. Giant goes after him, so Savage puts Elizabeth in the way. Giant picks her up like she's weightless and sets her aside. <laughs> Savage charges, but Giant lifts him overhead almost as easily. Yes. And chucks him over the ropes into the ring. Back in, Savage clips the leg and works the leg with strikes and a ring post smash. Heenan says Giant should walk it off, but Dusty says that's hard with Savage a ripping and a snorting. <laughs> Is he a warthog? Might as well be, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. Giant to his feet, and Savage lands repeated clotheslines and finally takes off his torn shirt sleeve. <laughs> but Giant won't fall. His wobbles honestly look more like a weird dance than selling. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Savage crossbody off the top for two, but Giant catches a second try and chokeslams him for the three count and the win. WCW 3, NWO 1. The commentators celebrate excitedly as Giant limps his way out of the ring. Good on you remembering to sell on the walk back, Giant. Makes up for the wobble dance during the match. <laughs> Elizabeth helps the fallen Savage exit. Heenan builds up that WCW is ahead in matches, but the next two are the most important, as they're for titles. We get another helicopter shot, this one of the sunset, which to be fair is a better shot than any other tonight, though roughly two-thirds of the screen is still taken up by the ground, which is almost entirely black. <laughs> Why did they waste money on helicopters? <laughs> Heenan jokes that Savage got a closer view of the sunset than even the helicopter did. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? This was a fun match. It's definitely not a complicated match. Mm -hmm. They tell a pretty simple story in a fairly brisk amount of time. Giant is just so powerful. Savage has to be vicious and sneaky. First couple tries don't quite work out for him. He finally finds the one that's going to work for him. But yeah, it's good to see Giant selling as well as he does. That's wobbly dance aside. He sells the leg, I think. Like, he's trying to get up really well. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He does a good job with that. Yeah. Commentary, like, that's a nice point as well, comparing this to the Mysterio match, pointing out that he's literally twice Ray's size, so him trying to put his weight up on his knee is definitely much harder than even Ray. Yeah, I really liked that as a plot point. They did a good job building those up. Mm -hmm. Again, you get the story of almost the weird reverse with Flair, because you have the experienced heel working over the stronger, inexperienced face here. Mm -hmm. It never really slows down too much. There's not like a long period of a big hole, like I said, in the first match. They keep things steady and consistent here. Savage does a really nice job of really putting over how strong and powerful and yes. giant is. He's game for making giant look like this big guy that's a threat to the whole NWO. Right, yes, absolutely. Much like with Flair, he really wants this guy to look strong and powerful and succeed. Mm -hmm. It's funny because there's so many weird parallels in this show. But then there's these dark contrasts. I mean, 
Flair is a face in that match with a, what, 150-pound six. And Savage is the heel here with a 450-pound giant. Yes. Telling similar stories, but different ways to do it, which is nice. See, all six need to do to, to win is put on a lot of weight and grow, I don't know, about a about another two feet. Yes, there you go. <laughs> that would have worked. <laughs> Good gosh. Can you picture someone the giant size doing one of six's spin kicks? Oh, geez, yeah. <laughs> scared the crap out of me. You nailed, I think, exactly my description of this match is uncomplicated, short, but fun. Mm-hmm. Giant looks massive and powerful, toying with a legend like Randy Savage with ease until Savage finally manages to take out a leg. And then it kind of feels like the short-form version of Conan versus Mysterio, which I did like that the commentators brought up the comparison, but at the same time, this might play a little bit better if we hadn't had a match this same night that had kind of the same theme. But still, it gives the match a focus and lets Giant feel briefly, at least, under threat. It's one of those things, it's the most logical attack with a big Absolutely. giant like that, is to go up to the leg. Yeah. So you, you can do different angles, but you have to really set him up. Like, you have to set up, he runs in the corner and hurts his neck or something. It's harder to set up that, mm-hmm. some other thing, or like his arm is weak, or him a Triple H fight at some point. Triple H, like, attacks his hand, so he can use a choke slam. You can find ways to do it, but the short, simplest way is attack the leg. Yeah, it, it makes perfect sense as a theme for this match. I think it's just, there's a bit of a repetition highlighted by the two matches being on the same show. Mm-hmm. The chokeslam counter ending, though, was a great touch. I, I loved how that went off. This match had good energy, and while it felt somewhat basic, it was short enough that it still held my interest and gave Giant a convincing, dominant win over Savage to really build him up. Mm. We obviously discussed at length the Giant-Hogan match, as I was the main event of the Hog Wild show. Yeah. This match, I think, is an interesting comparison contrast, mm-hmm. because... Savage is a very experienced, at this point, a very experienced heel. He's played a heel on and off for 10-plus years at this point. Obviously, this match is shorter and less stakes, but at the same time, it really shows you what a good veteran versus giant match could be. Yeah. And that's why the contrast is interesting for me. Yeah, I agree. This one shows you, I think, a better balance and better concepts for what you're doing to attack the giant. Exactly. Where, thinking back on the Hogwild match, that's actually one of the things that's really missing in Hogan's heel act against him, is attacking the leg. Yeah. As a means of explaining why Giant is down as much as he is in that match. Whereas he just knuckle-locks him and just... Yeah, he does kick him, yeah. but he doesn't, like, really work the leg. He starts going to arm holds instead, mm-hmm. where if he did more leg holds on the Giant, that's what Savage does here, mm-hmm. is work on the leg. The only critique I'll really have with Savage's performance in this match, he doesn't have a ton of variety for how he attacks the leg, mm. but at the same time, it's a super short match. Right. So it's not, as, it's not a huge critique. Yeah. It's just, again, that comparison of looking at this versus Conan Mysterio and the sheer variety that Conan's bringing in for how he works mm-hmm. Mysterio's leg. This falls a little short, but also it's a lot shorter. Right. The other thing is you can really see things that wrestlers get over time. The Giant here, this is 1997. He's only a little over a year in his pro career at this point. He decides to rip Savage's shirt off to punch him in the back. Would it have hurt him less with the shirt on? No, the, the chops for DDP earlier make some sense where he took Hennig's singlet down for him, but yeah, the forearms, I'm not sure that Savage's shirt is not giving him like a genuine plus one armor or something. No, no. Later, when you see the more established veteran Big Show in WWE, he'll do the rip the shirt open from the front and start chopping the chest. He'll do the, the big slap thing that he Yeah, does. he'll do his yeah. big slap chop, yeah. So you can see where he starts the idea of how this works. I'll rip the shirt and attack him. Mm-hmm. He didn't quite get the idea just yet, and that's comes with experience. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting to see the comparison, even between his performances in the two years as well, though, that 
you do feel like he has a little bit more to him this year. Yeah. That you can trust him with complicated spots like the catch into the choke slam counter. Yeah. Or the run and press move. Yeah. yeah. And he makes his selling a little bit more interesting too. So there's some more depth to his performance this year, even though he was already quite good in 96. Mm-hmm. You feel like he can pull his own weight a little more in the match, doesn't need as much guidance. It'd be interesting to see if we get a sense of further development having this match comparison across the shows for him. The other last thing I'll say is that one thing you can really critique Savage for in later years is his, his body distort naturally breaks down from wear and tear. You know, he stops doing as much of his diving elbow drops and dives to the outside, you know, like he used to do when he was 10, 15 years younger. And when you get matches around this time, to me some later, where you need to see that version, he's trying to do it, but he didn't have the speed or the precision as much as he used to. You don't see that weakness here because he's working this heel match against. Yeah. So this really protects him as well. It feels like what he's able to do really, really well in the ring now, that that's what's being focused on. Here yeah, it's prioritizing well. his strength, not his weakness. Yeah. Yeah. Savage, as mentioned, would be in the tag match with DDP at Fall Brawl. As for the Giant, he would face Scott Norton, which seems kind of like a step down from this match a bit. <laughs> it seems interesting, though, to me, honestly, the two big balukas going at each other. Oh, yeah, it's not a bad match, but it's like, you just annihilate Ray Savage. What's next? Yeah, I guess Scott Norton. Yeah, yeah. At very least, on the pecking order, it's it's a step down. <laughs> not that it's like an insult or squirt. No, Norton, yeah, yeah. Who generally can terrify me real life, so. Yeah, yeah. Our eighth match is The Outsiders, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall versus the Steiner brothers, Rick and Scott, with Ted DiBiase, for the Outsiders WCW World Tag Team Championship. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. The Outsiders become tag champions, and they've, they keep setting up that people can beat them, but then just get the title changes stripped away, which is kind of really cheap, because instead of just having escape matches, they just have them, just hand the title back to them, like three different times. Basically, like, Bischoff will rule, oh, for such and such a reason, this doesn't count. Yeah. Or just, nope, they get it back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So instead of team to win, they just actually lose and just undo the match, which is yeah. really kind of annoying. The main competitor and the person they've really been trying to get away from is the Steiner Brothers. Even to the point where the enemy who interfered in a match determined them were contenders, helping the Harlem Heat become contenders to keep Steiner from fighting them. Mm. Eventually, Heat would lose a number contendership match back to the Steiners, so that's how we got this match. Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah, so they're going out of the way to make sure they don't have to fight the Steiners, which, fair point, I wouldn't want to fight the Steiners in 97. <laughs> no. There's also a whole thing that they hint at, suppose that there was some sort of motorcycle or car accident involving the Steiners that they say the outsiders were involved in, but kind of a weird thing to bring up and not have like a criminal angle to if you yeah yeah that that seems like the sort of thing that at least should maybe result in you losing your titles yeah right that you actually caused a car accident to attempt to eliminate your competitors <laughs> right <laughs> it's definitely something having outside of the ring yeah nwo theme count four nicely following the license plates we get a highway sign style graphic for claiming the match for the wsw world tag team title I always appreciate it when WCW does a strong emphasis of theme across the whole show's feel. Mm-hmm. Tony says, if WCW can gain the tag titles and Luger can retain the world title, that's it for the NWO. Heenan says not to count them out and says if you get overconfident, it's like if you're a kid expecting lots of presents Christmas morning and you wake up and find your parents have moved. <laughs> Jeez. Wow. Dark. <laughs> so I had a bad childhood. I guess so. 
The outsiders, again, are wearing wolfpack colors. A guy in the crowd <laughs> holds up a sign proclaiming, The outsiders kick s because the A has been cut out for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe someone caught him and made him remove it? I don't know. Yeah. Dusty and Heaton note that Nick Patrick, assigned referee, is formerly of the NWO. And Tony adds that Ted DiBiase, the Steiner's manager, also used to be the NWO, but saw the light. Steinerized. <laughs> Seeing another shot of the sunset, Heenan says the sun might be setting on the NWO, and Dusty requests a hug. <laughs> DiBiase is out well ahead of his team, who come out riding Harleys while Pyro goes off. I am not fond of the Steiner's new outfits. No. They're both shiny red, I guess, spandex. Yeah, it's like, I was like, latex? I'm not, yeah, not yeah. sure, yeah. Vinyl, I think vinyl is what they That might be, yeah. I do not think they are very flattering. Mm -hmm. And besides, uh, the outsiders are also wearing red. Uh -huh. So, you know, mix it up a little bit, guys. <laughs> yeah. I will say seeing them ride on motorcycles give me flashbacks to SummerSlam 92 with the road warriors riding on bikes. Mm -hmm. At least having someone make into on the bike with this long ramp, one, helps explain why you need this long dirt path ramp. Yes. And two, is on theme with the show. So, hey. Yeah, oh, no. Yeah, I love the entrance. That's what I mean. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to put a positive there. Cause it's yeah. Like, someone going, hey, we have this long ramp for bikes. We should, you know, have some ride a bike out. Yeah, the entrance is great. Perfectly fits the Steiners. I mean, we, we saw on the earlier show, they were some of the ones that did the road trip. So, yeah, absolutely. Like, I love the entrance. I just hate the outfits. <laughs> they could have worn their um, University of Michigan jackets over at first. That how that combination would go. <laughs> so I'm going to call Scott Steiner Scott. Okay. And Scott Hall Hall. All right. <laughs> Scott and Hall start us off. Yeah, that's not confusing at all. No. Name <laughs> slightly. Hall shoves Scott around and flings a toothpick, so Scott slaps him hard. Hall sells like he lost a tooth. Hall gets Scott down with an underhook back body drop, but slaps him repeatedly in an armbar, and Scott near Steiner lines his head off. <laughs> Scott back suplex and double underhook powerbomb, and Nash charges in to nail Scott, so Rick gets in and the brothers drive the NWO out, then do their trademark pose in the ring. Tony and Dusty note that the outsiders are outside. Yeah. Rick in, but Hall spits on him and tags Nash, who floors Rick with huge strikes until Rick shoves him into the turnbuckle and back suplexes him. Tagged to Scott, but Hall soon hits him from behind. Scott decks him, but Nash hits a harsh big boot. Someone in the fourth row, right side, catch Scott Steiner's head, Tony jokes. <laughs> <laughs> the NWO trade off beating Scott down, and Patrick catches some rule-breaking, but misses others, often because Rick is increasingly loudly protesting the cheating. Yeah. Two counts on a Hall fallaway slam and Nash sidewalk slam. Scott repeatedly gets close to a tag, but the NWO hold him back, Nash decking Rick to stop one. Scott even crawls for the corner with Hall on his back, and Electric Chair drops him, but falls away from Rick in the process. Nash taunts him about how close he got and clotheslines him for two. <laughs> Scott dodges a charging big boot, and Nash crotches himself on the turnbuckle, but tags Hall to stop Scott's tag. Hall's second rope face buster, and he crotch chops at Rick, who charges but gets ushered out. But DiBiase goes to yell at Nash, drawing Patrick over, and as Hall goes for the outsider's edge, Rick lunges in and Steiner lines him like half the length of the ring. <laughs> Hall goes flying on that one. He it's does, wonderful. Yeah. Rick mocks the crotch chop. 
Scott overhead belly to belly, and both Scots are down for seven. Hall grabs Scott's leg to try to stop the tag, but Scott kicks him away and tags Rick. Rick runs wild with Steiner lines and slams, and Scott clotheslines Nash out of the ring. Scott picks Hall up on his shoulders, and Rick goes up top, bulldogging Hall down, then tells Scott to pin him. Rick's the legal man. Yeah, that's true. One. Two. But Nash drags Patrick out, and Patrick calls for the bell for a monstrous cheer from a crowd that has clearly never watched a wrestling show before in their lives. Mm, yep. DiBiase and the Steiners think they've won by pinfall, and DiBiase grabs the titles and hands them to the brothers, but Patrick takes the belts back, explaining that he'd actually DQ'd Nash for pulling him out of the ring, so the Outsiders keep the titles. DiBiase, justifiably, gets in his face. Your hand was literally coming down for the three, Patrick. You could still slap the bat from outside so they could win the titles. Yeah, right. Patrick beats a hasty retreat to avoid a Steiner beatdown. Big, big boos for the disqualification announcement. Mm -hmm. Still, we're WCW4, NWO1, as we get yet more pointless, super shaky, (laughs) super far-off helicopter shots. I will not let this go. (laughs) Thoughts on this one? I thought it was a pretty good match. Obviously, all four people involved are pretty prolific tag wrestlers. You know, the latter two were mostly just from here. But they made a pretty good resume in a pretty short amount of time. Mm-hmm. We're a little more than a year out from their debut in the company as tag team. Yeah, yeah. Somewhat going back to the first match, there's not like an obvious mess up any of these. The only thing you get in this is it's quite possibly the most prolonged build to hot tag. It is a super long face and peril segment. It's not uninteresting. They do no. a good job with it constantly, but man, it goes on a while. I didn't remember my notes, but I think when I rewatched it the other day, I think it's about eight minutes. Mm-hmm. It was like two after when, like, okay, here's the cutoff. Now I'm going to wait till when he gets the tag. And I think it's like 10 or 11 after when he finally gets the tag. You're like, yeah. wow, <laughs> that is a very prolonged one. But like I said, yeah, they, they keep it interesting. There's points where Scott Steiner, that is, not the other Scott, um, Probably could have made it if he didn't decide to like do the generic face thing of, I'm going to do an elbow drop while he's down instead of running over to a tag. Mm-hmm. And they do a good job with like Anderson style. One guy grabs the guy's foot to prevent the tag oh, yeah. and also tags his partner and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think the outsiders do a really nice job in this of repeatedly blocking the tag. Sure. Yeah. So it makes sense why it's an extended one and they do a good job with it, but it, you start feeling it mm-hmm. like how long that lasts. Yeah. To be fair, in comparison to last year's match where it was Luger and Sting against the outsiders. They only do the face stumbles towards the corner and gets closed on my Scott Hall spot once, and not twice. So that's an improvement. Fair. They they learn not to do that spot a second time on a single match. Well, Scott Steiner is less trusting than Sting, so... That is very true. (laughs) That is accurate. It's a really interesting match to watch because it's well executed. They build and build and build. And then it kind of stops because they just DQ in it so quickly afterwards. Mm Mm-hmm. This isn't like the first time these two teams fought. This isn't the first match you're going to set up two months on the line, they're going to rematch, and this is going to be the one they finally get to win it. The first time these guys fought was in like March, might have been in February of this year. Actually, I think it was in January. Sold out. Oh, you're right. Thank you. Yeah, so we're six months from the first time they fought. So this sudden abrupt stop to build up another match thing seems kind of cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's all these rumors that went around over the years that. Supposedly the Steiners were booked to win the titles, but then supposedly last minute it was 
got back. I can't confirm that, so I'm not thinking of the fact they definitely did this. But it feels like one of those things that was meant to build for this big title chain, and it, nope, cut off right there. And I, I, again, I don't know if that's the case, but it feels like it. For me, storyline-wise, it works better for the NWO to keep the tag titles. Hmm. The idea of this show is WCW has a chance to beat the NWO, but their hopes and dreams are crushed. It basically extends the plot to Starcade. Starcade is the end goal. The NWO cannot go down until it's Sting doing it. Right. That's your build. Now, obviously, it doesn't go this way. Yes, as you covered. But to me, the entire point of the NWO angle is getting to Starcade 1997 and all of the main losses for the NWO happened there. That that's where they lose the tag titles, that's where they lose the world yeah. title. So maybe that was the plan, mm-hmm. but if that was the plan, I think it was a bad plan, and I'm glad it changed. Hmm. I can see the kind of argument maybe being that, because of what happens later in the show, it doesn't truly demoralize and defeat the NWO because they don't lose everything on the show. Yeah. They win when it really, really counts. I get that. My view on the NWO, as I'll make clear a little bit later, is the NWO should be kept super-duper strong in all cases, until Starcade 97. Mm. I'm not necessarily opposed yeah, to that, yeah. but we're at the point where they've had the title change hands at least twice, one thing as outsiders, mm. and just and just be overturned, like, of the next show. Yeah, and that and you shouldn't be doing it that right. way. Yeah. My point is just that you've extended this, Cyrus can't beat them, or it can't stick mm. so long, and they just do it again. Yeah, they, what they needed is a greater variety of challengers, I think. You can have the Steiners challenge them in January, have hinky stuff happened where they keep the titles and then go away from the Steiners until we're getting really close to Starcade. Right, yeah. I think the mistake is bringing it back to the Steiners mid-year. Right, right. You know, keep it with Harlem Heat. Have them have a run at it a couple times and mm-hmm. figure out a couple other tag teams you can do. And that's something, for the most part, they figured out with Hogan. They gave Hogan right. a variety of challenges over the years and kept Sting specifically away from them. Exactly. Yeah, so in another similarity to last year, as you pointed out, we've got the Outsiders in the second-to-last match in the tag contest, mostly focused on one guy, Sting last year, Scott this year, uh-huh. doing an extended face and peril bit while Nick Patrick referees and gives the match a controversial finish. Yes. <laughs> as we noted, it feels like Scott's face and peril bit goes on a little long. I think it's probably to get enough of an air of uncontrollability to the match that it's believable that Patrick might just get fed up and throw it out. But I think it actually ends up being the opposite. Mm. It feels like Patrick's put up with so much that he shouldn't even be bothered by being pulled out of the ring and should just finish his count. Right. That said, the Outsiders do an excellent job taking Scott apart with brutal offense, quick tag work, and loads of wonderful cheating. Mm -hmm. While Rick and DiBiase lose their dang minds, Scott sells like a champ, and Patrick gets progressively more irritated. There's lots of great subtle facial expressions from Patrick during this match. It just... It gets so, so close to being a great story. I just don't care for the ending. Yeah. I would also argue, too, I'm not sure you should have had both Rick and DiBiase be so incensed of the match. Rick, 100%, that makes sense. Yeah. That's his character. He's the hothead. Right. I could see DiBiase being the much more experienced veteran, especially even in tag teams. He's distracted keeping Rick in place, from Rick running in and just getting mm-hmm. cued for attacking and you know, not leaving the ring. Him being as susceptible as Rick seems maybe a bit off to me. What I do like that they do for DiBiase is he's the guy that's ultimately able to control it and turn it to their advantage. True. He's like, hmm, they're distracting Patrick. I'm going to engineer a distraction as well that will let us work on them. So he turns it into a positive for himself. Yeah, I can see that. But yeah, it would have been nice if you had him a little more controlled the entire time. And again, his distraction is keeping Rick in place. Yeah, yeah. 
So this gets a little weird. So at the Clash 35, the next show that comes up, originally it's supposed to be a uh, match with Holland Nash against Lex Luger and DDP. It's just like a normal match. For some reason, they do two changes. One, they pull Nash from the match. I believe he's actually injured <laughs> between this show and that, which is why it's not in it. So they swap Savage in Nash's place. So it's Holland Savage, but then they also make it for the tag titles. Come again? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You simply pull one of the tag partners out, but then also switch it to... So it wasn't originally for the tag titles. Correct. Because then I could understand it, but... Yeah. It, it, it was Lex Luger GP against Holland Nash as normal, because they, they had to earn a title shot or something. Weird. That sounds like a fun tag team, by the way. Luger and uh, Paige. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> By fall brawl, Nash is recovered. He's at least covered to work the War Games match, a one-person-and-eight-man match. Right. Hall is in a tag match with someone else separately, so they're both wrestling on the show, but not together. So for some reason, Hall and Nash are not put in War Games together, which is strange. That is a little bit odd, yeah. Yeah. We get yet more shots of bikers on the streets, and Manson shirt guy is back. As Tony says, Patrick acted on instinct in the end, and only later realized what he'd done, that he cost WCW the belts. Heenan notes, Patrick, just coming off suspension, was likely being very careful with the rules, and it unfortunately cost WCW. The commentators do help the match there, but it just still isn't quite enough for me to explain the ending. Yeah. When they argue a bit, I think, in the DDP Hennig match, or about the referee being more relaxed at the rules, they want to see him fight. Yeah. But then on the same show, we have the automatic DQ for touching the referee. Right, yeah. The two ref bumps, arguably definitely more accidental, don't automatically cause a DQ, but a right. single ref bump does. Heenan says the outsiders keeping their titles might have given Hogan some momentum, but Dusty argues that everything is over that we done seen. How true, Dusty. How true. <laughs> I can't argue with that, yes. <laughs> Tony says WCW's goal was to end the NWO, and to do that, they had to take all the gold. But they haven't done that. Heenan agrees, no matter what happens now, the NWO still have a world championship. A lady in the crowd at a biker rally is wearing an umbrella hat. Just putting that out there. Yeah. She's prepared for the rain, that's all. It's time for our final match. Hollywood Hulk Hogan versus Lex Luger for Luger's WCW World Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this one is Randy Anderson. So it was a bit of a trip to get here, so stick with me here. As we noted from the previous show, Lex Luger would win his future world title shot with no date put in mind at Spring Stampede, the show famous for Giants' big moment of uh, selflessness. Thank you. And Booker T saying a word I can't repeat. <laughs> yes. All the way to that match. Hogan's done his usual drop in and out stuff because he has limited TV and pay-per-view dates. And it kind of works for the story, to be fair, that he's docking people. It's not like, you know, if Piper in his prime just, like, leaves for three months, it looks really weird. Mm-hmm. At least the cowardly heel running away kind of Right, works. yeah. And he has the group behind. Hogan would come back, and there'd be a tag match involving Hogan and Rodman, uh, Bash the Beach. That ultimately ended in Luger getting a submission win over Hogan, but of course, it's a tag match and title's not on the line. So now he has a title shot, and he's made the champion tap out in a non-title match. Right. Good way to build to a... Yeah. It's the classic flair. You can be flair in a tag match and build up to the final thing. So after that, he, as the Carl heel, would avoid Luger and try to put off the title match he knows is coming. Finally, 
he would relent and agree to a uh, nine-title match, which Luger would also win on Nitro. So now Luger has beaten him a couple of times and has his title shot in his back pocket. Even though he never wears pants, so <laughs> what do you keep him in? To be, to be clear, he wears tights. Yes. He's not naked. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> oh, so he wears the same outfit he wears all the time. We have a very different total package. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So naturally, this all builds up to Hogan finally putting a title line which is at the Nitro before the pay-per-view, mm-hmm. and not at the pay-per-view? Yeah, it's strange. My best guess is ratings. They don't say that, but I guess they wanted a big moment. But it's really weird to have this big celebratory thing happen on Nitro, and you've give, given this match away. Now, pay to see it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, Luger's champion for his first time in, I want to say, five years? It's been a while. I believe he's on his out in 92. He puts over Sting on the way out of the company to retire from wrestling, which definitely stuck, as you can see, being world champion on this show five years later. Yeah. So about Luger's title win. Mm -hmm. I want to be clear that I don't begrudge Luger a win, especially as he does some of his best character work ever and gets super over in 96 and 97. Mm -hmm. But story-wise, I do not think it should have happened. Mm -hmm. This... Or Piper's non-title win over Hogan at Stark in 96, frankly. Actually, he has two. Yeah. Any singles match win over Hogan, I think, should not have happened Right during this storyline. The entire storyline is based around getting the maximum possible impact out of Stark in 1997's main event between Hogan and Sting. For that to happen, my view is no one should win the title off of Hogan between Hogwild 96 and Stark in 97, and really, no one should even have a singles match win over him between Hogwild 1996 and Starcade 1997. Tag matches are fine, I think, because they build up hope. Yeah, you can do what you want. Battle Royales, tag matches, and the like. Sure. But Hogan should win every singles match between those two shows. Doesn't have to be clean. Yeah. Or it could lose via count out or something. Yeah, yeah. You cannot have someone get a pinfall or submission victory in a singles match over Hogan between those two shows. Yes. Why? Because you want Sting's win to be obviously special. Mm-hmm. You don't want to have to answer questions about what makes Sting's win unique when Piper, Luger, or somebody else has already beaten Hogan. You don't want to have to answer questions about why Sting's win should break the NWO when others have already won and the NWO has remained. You want Sting's win to be a massive, massive shock that immediately causes the breakdown of the NWO because Hogan's spellbinding power over them and over WSW as a whole is broken in one moment. Yeah, Hogan is the cult leader that controls them with his power. Yeah. They, see, they see he's a man and not a god. He falls, and that's it. That's what you need to happen at Starcade 97. Yes. Having minor losses and temporary title changes along the way cheapens Starcade 1997 and makes Sting's win look like just another win. It puts the focus of the storyline not on Sting's initial win, but on Hogan's return match for the title. Because of Luger's win before this show and Hogan's win at this show, slight spoilers there, sorry, we can no longer say that the NWO ends at Starcade 1997, even if that show went smoothly, which it doesn't. Yes. Instead, all the tension is about whether Sting can defend the title in a second match. You almost should have had Sting's title defense be Starcade 1997 then. Oh, yeah. Not the initial win. Now, this slight detour does not ruin the whole angle by any means, but I do think that it cheapens the finale a bit and changes the focus in a way that's not ideal. Obviously, Starcade 1997 does not go right anyway. That's not this detour's fault. Yeah. But 
it is just another little slip in the angle that I thought was worth calling out. So it's kind of an amusing parallel for you. In 2011, TNA would have Sting randomly return on their show, which I think basically was a Thursday, right before they pay-per-view. So Sting was supposed to fight Jeff Hardy for their world title. Instead, they have Sting return before that and win the title. <laughs> so someone else said the same thing with Sting in the legal position. Yeah, yeah. Kind of amazing. Well, what tennis of hindsight, yeah. Am I am I off no. base on that or you feel it? It's like, no, I feel the same way. Yeah, the story has to be can someone beat Hogan and specifically can it count? Yeah. Because again, you can beat him in a tag match, so look, he's not infallible, but then when the title match happens, something scary happened or he does cheating or something. Yeah. You would build him up as this guy that you can't make a big win count. It's not quite the best analogy, I don't think, but it's like you know, you had the Undertaker's streak. Mm-hmm. Brock Lesnar beats him. Yes. And if you then try to build up someone else as, can he beat the streak? Well, the streak's already gone. Yeah. The question this year is, who can beat Hogan? Who can take the title off Hogan? Who can end the NWO by taking the title off Hogan? Luger takes the title off Hogan. The NWO doesn't end. So when Sting eventually comes back as your conquering hero and great savior of the company Mm -hmm. and takes the title off of Hogan, who gives a crap? Yeah. We've already seen that doesn't end the NWO. Mm Mm-hmm. And indeed, it ends up not ending the NWO, but originally, obviously, the plan was that that ended the NWO. Yeah. But it just doesn't have that impact, in part because of how it goes, but in part because you've already lost it. Yes. You know, you've already lost the opportunity for that to be the end. Yeah. It's like if Frodo already chucked the ring into Mount Doom, and then somebody, you know, just fished it out before it got burned, and now you have a second quest to see if we can chuck it in Mount Doom again. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Michael Buffer does our ring introductions, wearing a beret for some reason. It's a biker rally, Buffer, not Mythbusters. Yeah, it's it's supposed to be like a leather biker thing, but yeah. Looks a little bit Heineman. Yeah, with his white tuxedo as well. <laughs> yeah. He still calls the show Hog Wild. Nobody updated his cards, I guess. <laughs> End up your theme count, five. As Hendrix's voodoo child has been replaced, mostly, for Hogan's entrance. I think you can still occasionally catch a clip of it in the background. Yeah. Buffer calls him the former WCW slash NWO heavyweight champion of the world. Luger has his far too catchy theme and fireworks. WCW tries to justify the helicopters with some fireworks shots. Luger, switch up your normal black and white color scheme when you're fighting the NWO, at least. Yeah. (laughs) The big gold belt has indeed been cleaned up. Buffer dubs Luger the Master of the Torture Rack of Doom and the reigning WCW heavyweight champion of the world, so the NWO part of the title that Hogan lost is presumably vacant. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Heenan claims if you don't like this fight, you don't like your parents. <laughs> Let's see if we have some explaining to do to our respective families after this, Al. <laughs> Hogan gets in Luger's face and flicks sweat on him. Luger overpowers Hogan, and Hogan complains and cowers, as Tony notes that Anderson also refereed the match where Hogan lost the title, and Heenan mocks how quickly Hogan submitted in that match. Hogan tries working the arm with elbows, armbar, and standing wrist lock, but Luger powers free and puts on an armbar himself. Tony's take on the belt getting cleaned up. Tradition was shiny. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Fair enough. Luger arm drags, send Hogan retreating, and he takes the Lord's name in vain. Or maybe that's just the prayers part of his trading prayers and vitamins bit. Never like to pray, I guess. <laughs> the crowd chants that he sucks, so at least we got a crowd with a clue this time. Yeah. Back in, Hogan lands a knee to take control, 
and wears Luger down with strikes, stares, cable choking, a boring bear hug, and a double knuckle lock that gets an unfortunate camera angle that makes it look like the kneeling Luger is engaging in a different kind of wrestling. How have they not figured that angle out yet? <laughs> yes. It's a little better than the infamous WrestleMania 6 shot, but um, not by much. Yeah. Luger gets some comebacks, but Hogan cuts them off with cheap shots. Hogan gets some two counts off an elbow drop, a backbreaker, and a belly-to-back suplex. Hogan constantly taunts Luger, calling Luger a piece of meat, Lex Loser, and best of all, Flexi Lexi Luger Loser. I do like that one, yeah. Say that five times fast. Luger does some excellent sil- ah. Luger does some ex- I can't even say that five times fast. Yeah, right. Or one time, for that matter. <laughs> Luger does some excellent selling, his knees even buckling as Hogan drags him to his feet. Hogan suplex, and he turns away, dusting off his hands. But Luger drags himself to his feet, shakes off the damage, and roars. Hogan screams and runs for the corner, where Luger beats the crap out of him, selling his own strikes. Mm-hmm, yes. Hogan begs for mercy, but sneaks in an eye poke when Anderson inadvertently distracts Luger. Hogan roll up for two. He slams Luger and tries the leg drop, but Luger dodges. Luger's screaming lariat and diving forearm, but the NWO hits the ring. Luger dispatches Bagwell, Six, Norton, and Nash, beats up Hogan, and knocks Nash down again. Anderson gets Nash out, but Nash holds on to distract him, and Sting appears at ringside. The NWO looks scared, but as Luger bounces off the ropes to charge Hogan, Sting hits him in the back with his bat. Hogan leg drop for the three count and the win. So our final score is WCW4, NWO2, but the NWO took home the tag titles and the world title, so it has to be counted as a WCW loss despite the score. And speaking of scores, NWO theme count, six. (laughs) Which is entirely too many. At least they didn't bring a cake out this time. Sting silently retreats from ringside as the commentators despair. Hogan uses the belt to shield himself from drinks being hurled by the crowd, and the NWO makes its retreat. Definitely no long promo out in front of this crowd. (laughs) Tony theorizes that maybe Sting hit the wrong man, but Heenan notes there was only one man near him. (laughs) Come on, Tony, Dusty says. (laughs) (laughs) Heenan tells him not to make excuses. Ouch! (laughs) Yeah. According to Eric Bischoff's 83 Weeks, fake Sting here was actually Scott Hall, which makes sense because Hall doesn't run out with Nash to attack Luger. In a close-up, you can see that fake Sting has very Scott Hall-like stubble, too. Kurt Hennig and the Steiners come out to check on Luger alongside the trainer. Little late, guys. Also, was the giant taking a nap the whole time? <laughs> yeah. The Steiners help Luger make his exit, which is definitely something the giant could have helped more with. Just pick him up yeah. like Randy Savage earlier. <laughs> yeah, right? Thoughts on this one? For better or worse, this is a pretty basic heel Hogan match. Mm-hmm. He does his usual strikes and his basic holds and back rakes. And, and his yacha, yacha, yacha. Yeah. His, yeah, his cactus jack punches, yeah. That's such a weird similarity between the two, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> there's so few similarities between the two, but yeah, there's that. Yeah, there were a ton of flexible punching, yeah. In contrast to last year's match, obviously we have a much more experienced heel Hogan. 
they get the stalling way down, thankfully. Mm-hmm. And plus him attacking with strength the way he does makes more sense. But as strong as Luger is, the size difference is not the same. Right. So he's not forcing a guy almost a foot taller than him down to his knees by just squeezing his hands. The other advantage you have is that it's Luger taking all the selling, so it's nice and loud. Yes. For everyone to hear. So much. It's wonderful. <laughs> so it's an enjoyable match. It's pretty simple. It's two guys that started wrestling in the 80s. Hogan might start a little earlier, but the bulk of Hogan's career is the 80s. So he's very locked into 80s-style mm. match setups, for better or for worse. Even in the 2000s, there's not much modernization to a Hogan match. Mm-hmm. It, it definitely feels like an 80s match. Yeah. Not necessarily as a critique, but no. just as a, a stylistic observation. Yeah. No, absolutely. If you put a graphic at the bottom of this that said, you know, Road Wild 86, which obviously wasn't a thing, people might go, oh, yeah, maybe. I don't remember doing that show, but it looks like it. Yeah. But he goes, Luger never changes his attire. Yes. Bought a million black tights and just wore those. Yeah, exactly. Same boots, same tights, everything, yeah. Because Luger is selling this stuff, his energy and the noise level he makes makes it feel bigger and feel a little less basic. Mm-hmm. It's enjoyable in its simplicity. That said, for all the complaints I have about the last match and a DQ finish, so much happened in this match with no DQ. Mm-hmm. Those guys all run in the ring. Yes, none of them strike Luger, but they're literally in the ring. It's not like they do the thing where they hop the apron and you punch them off. Yes. That's a gray area for me as it is. Because I've seen matches where someone hops to the ring and they just disqualify people right. when they feel like counting it. It's Yeah, I, I don't get this. It'd be one thing if Hogan was the champ and you said, okay, Anderson is letting this go because he wants Luger to have the chance to take the title off of Hogan. He doesn't want Hogan to benefit by the guys cheating for him. Especially if this had followed the last match, that would tie right. the story well. Right. But Hogan's not the champ no. in this one. So, yeah, you should just be like, no, your goons are attacking. Clearly, I'm disqualifying you. Champion's advantage yeah. could help a face for once. Exactly. That's the constant thing in the NWO angle in general is when do DQs happen type of things with all the run-ins. This also brings up the question of where the heck are the WCW guys? Yeah. Because they added this wrinkle to this, which is that Luger can fend off these guys, but then here's quote-unquote Sting. Exactly. You had a perfect opportunity to have WCW guys come down and fight off the NWO in this big, almost triumphant moment, and they no one pays attention to the guy dressed as Sting because they think it's actually Sting. Yeah, he walks by them, they go, oh, hey. And they're like, hey, buddy. And he's like, raises his bat. <laughs> yeah. I just realized that we were not a visual show, so I should probably say something. Yeah, no, fair <laughs> enough, yeah. But you see, you had the wrinkle of, oh, here's quote-unquote Sting here. And it didn't really matter. It could have been anyone else hitting with the bat. Right. Yes. The only way that it matters is that it's an explanation of why Luger still just bounces off the ropes right in front of him. Sure. Still, it's this little, little thing. Mm-hmm. I would say this is not a great match, but it has a much, much better feel and flow than last year's main event. Right. Hogan does significantly less stalling, as you pointed out. Yes. There's only one notable retreat outside for just a little bit and a couple very brief moments of yelling at the crowd that are even incorporated into the match story as distracting him from working on Luger. Yeah. It's not, I'm yelling at the crowd because that's what heels do. It's, my character is actively getting irritated at the crowd yes. and letting that mess with his head. Exactly. We get a bit of a back and forth as Luger has several spots where he recovers and shows off his strength, rather than Hogan having solid control straight through once he first got it. It's also elevated by the big personalities of the two wrestlers. Hogan's constant taunting, I mean, he is constantly, constantly yeah. talking. 
and some excellent selling from Luger, except for the ram into the stairs where he clearly hits with his hands only. (laughs) Yes, that's true. And by actually having the right crowd reaction this year. Yes. The ending, as you said, is questionable, as with many NWO-era endings. A year into this angle, they have still not solved the question of how to do NWO cheating while having WCW look united against them, Mm -hmm. and that's a shame. Yeah. Still, last year we had an inexperienced wrestler in the Giant and an inexperienced heel in Hogan. This year we have two experienced wrestlers and a more polished heel act by Hogan. It's unquestionably better. Agreed. And I would call it an acceptable main event. I guess I don't have to apologize to my folks. How about you? I, I'm, I'm okay, I think. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we do like our parents. <laughs> yes. Hogan will not appear at Fall Brawl, even though his group is battling the horsemen. He's not bothered by that. He's just not okay. involved in that. So we won't actually see him until Halloween Havoc, which will have his match against Brody Pipe, which is um, memorable. Yeah, that's a word for it. Yeah. So yeah, we have two people that are going to be missing the next show. And have memorable matches at Halloween Havoc 97. One memorable because it's really, really good. And one because it involves Hogan and a cage. Yeah. Luger is DDP's partner at Fall Brawl. They set up this thing where Luger has been pinned by Scott Hall. Like Luger ends up being pinned in the tag match that happens at the Clash show. Mm-hmm. They start a feud based on this and the Fall Brawl match, which leads them fighting later at uh, Halloween Havoc. Okay. Fortunately, it means they're pulling Luger completely away from... Hogan the world title okay. after losing the title like five days after he wins it. Yeah. So he's still fighting NBO, but he's not fighting the right person in NBO. Ah, I gotcha. Tony says he's been told something is going on backstage, but rather than go back to it right away, the commentators still discuss Sting's apparent turn to the NWO. Dusty says that what happens next is important. WCW was on a roll and feeling good, but they failed to take out the NWO. Sting has been aloof from them. Tony says, Sting ripped out their heart. Heenan says, Hogan would have been gone, but now he's champion again. Does feel a little weird, all of them going serious mode while still in their biker-style outfits. Fair enough, yeah. We finally cut backstage, where the various NWO members over the night have been joined by Dennis Rodman. Notably, I still don't see Hall. Hmm. An announcer voice calls Rodman the real hot rod. Hogan, posing next to world champ Conan, He's the one holding the belt. Yes, he is. Is all smiles. Hogan says Rodman passed the initiation, and now he gets to anoint the title to bring it back in the family. Rodman does a very poor job of spray-painting NWO, all caps, on the belt. It's a bit of a mess. (laughs) I wonder if Hogan had Conan hold the belt because he was worried Rodman would get overspray on him. (laughs) Yeah, probably, yeah. Hogan says he loves sharing the title with the NWO, and the NWO members celebrate with Nash proclaiming the belt back in the family. Wait, he loves sharing the belt with the NWO, but kicked Giant out when he won a title shot? Yes. Okay, just checking. No conflict there. No okay, contradictions. Good. What are you talking about? <laughs> okay. Hogan applauds himself and says, now they can all sleep at night. Sleep and sound. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it's a return to norm. Because having Luger win this title... And then just loses it so quickly. It feels like they're teasing the idea of how a good happy ending could be, and they're just yanking it away mm-hmm. suddenly. If you really gave us the definitive ending, like you should have with Sting defeating Livio and that, I can actually accept that just fine. 
because you said, here's how it could have ended happily. Oh, it didn't. Oh, here's the real happening. You finally get that. Yeah, I think my only problem with it is that the focus becomes on the return match. Oh, it's like, no. Can he defend it? Exactly. Huh? It's a side aspect, but I, yeah. I can see the bait and switch of the finale to this group being okay if you give us an actual proper mm-hmm. finale. Like I said, it doesn't ruin it on its own. No. It's just... Yeah, purely in this setup and story, I think works okay if you have a good payoff, which they do not. I do like the familial atmosphere the NWO has here, with everyone laughing and joking. The informal mood is kind of neat. Mm-hmm. It just isn't anywhere near as big a shock, and it's not done in front of the fans, so it doesn't draw a crowd reaction like last year's did. Yeah. Last year, you wondered if they should wait until Nitro to do the post-match promo and spray painting, Al. Yeah, they did. And I said no at the time. Yeah. This year, I think they should have. Yes, agreed. This just comes off as kind of an afterthought. It's a neat atmosphere, but underselling the moment. Yeah. Doing it with a big, you'll never get rid of me promo from Hogan would have been much, yeah. much stronger. One more super shaky helicopter shot of the ring from far, far away, and we cut to our credits. <laughs> I've never noticed this title before, but they've got a position called Roadologist. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's managing the road trips. Take samples of the soil, I guess. Yeah. Capcom knockoff sounding music plays us out, and Road Wild 1997 is done. So, overall thoughts on Road Wild 1997? I think it's a pretty serviceable show. I don't think there's any bad matches on the show, really. There's some that obviously I liked better or worse than others. At most, you could say the show is enjoyable just for, like, for the segment, but it doesn't feel super interesting. Mm-hmm. The first show, being the first of these Sturgis shows, feels unique in them itself. And they had bike stuff with the match with Medusa and that, mm-hmm. any other biker feel to this whole thing. With this one, it's more like the well, we're doing doing this this show again, and they did a little biker stuff, but like having the Steiners ride in on the second to last match on the show. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, they don't really do much with the the whole aesthetic to it. Yeah. You, you get a little bit better graphics than last year with yeah. like the license plates and everything, but they don't really bring the biker theme into the matches. No, no. Yeah, it, it's not a bad show. There's much more to talk about, even if the match quality isn't always as good on 96 Hogwild, necessarily, mm-hmm. because it's a unique setting and this feel to it. Yeah. The second time, you don't have that unique feel unless you do more with it, and they don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think there's really any bad matches. It's not like oh, definitely don't watch this match, it's terrible, skip to the next one. But there's also not, like, some amazing match that, if you watch the show for one match, you gotta watch this one. Right. That's where we're at. In many ways, this show felt like a rehash of last year. Yes. Think about what both shows have. Okay. A road trip video package. Uh Uh-huh. The Steiners at the internet table. Yes. A second match focused on working over an existing injury. Yes. Benoit fighting Malenko. Uh-huh. Ric Flair fighting an unexpected opponent in the mid-card. Mm-hmm. The Outsiders in a tag match just before the main event that features a highly extended face and peril spot. Yeah. Hogan in the main event challenging for the world title. Uh-huh. The Heenan, Dusty, Tony, occasionally Tanae commentary team. Yes. Rally footage. Uh-huh. Helicopter shots. Yes. And a crowd heavily infused with bikers. Indeed. Now, some of these things go better than last year. Sure. In particular, I'd say the injury match this year with Mysterio and Conan, though the ice train one was certainly fine last year. Yeah. The main event. Mm-hmm. And the crowd. Agreed. Others are pretty even. Some, particularly the road trip and rally footage and the helicopter shots, go much worse. <laughs> yeah. But there's just so many things that give you a sense of deja vu 
and there's only one prior show in this series. I should not be feeling like it's this familiar. Well, this is a huge roster of people. It shouldn't be this much overlap. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't help that a lot of the matches feature underwhelming or somewhat awkward performances. Mm-hmm. Like you said, there's there's none that are actually bad. No. But in several matches, the performers just didn't quite seem to click, leading to strange bits of hesitation or seeming miscommunication. Yeah. Actual botches are pretty rare, yeah. but an extra level of polish just felt like it was missing. Mm-hmm. I can't honestly say matches went actually badly. No. All were acceptable to good, sure. but I just felt like they didn't flow quite right. Uh-huh. Every match got me thinking, this is okay, but mm-hmm. that but was ever-present all night long. Right. That said, I do really like that a few of the matches also took some risk or put performers in different positions. Flair fought an unexpected opponent again this year in six. Mm -hmm. Mysterio and Conan put on a match that focused a lot on working the leg and very little on high-flying. Malenko basically got to work his half of a tag match by himself. Yeah. So as much as this show was an imitation of last year, specific performers were put in new places or situations, and I appreciate that. Yeah, I can see that. Promo content was basically non-existent. Yeah. Which was really, really weird, given how supposedly important this show was. Heck, Dusty even talked up how doing constant interviews might have messed with Luger's ability to prepare for his match, and then we got absolutely no interview with Luger. Yeah, that's true. We barely even heard from the NWO for that matter, which just felt wrong. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Despite how important this all supposedly is, the show feels like an afterthought without the promo work. What's the thing? Like, so, assuming this goes right for the faces on this show, they win the tag titles and Hogan can't win the title back, and this this is the death blow. For the NWO, that would be a pretty lackluster ending. Exactly, right? Yeah, it feels like there should be so much more to this. Yeah. The commentary team is good, though. Mm -hmm. They seem a little bit more on the ball than last year, and do a good job filling in for promos on building up the importance of the show. Their worry for and reactions to the tag title match and the main event in particular are spot on. Yeah. And there's a good sense of hope and then creeping despair from them as the night wears on and things start to turn against WCW. Right. While the arena design is uninspiring, I did like the little touches of theme that we got throughout the night, particularly the license plate graphics. Mm -hmm. It's just a nice touch, like the wanted posters that we got once on the Spring Stampede shows. Yeah. And it added to the show a bit. It's even better when they occasionally really personalize the graphics, like Mongo's Bears Colors one or Malenko's Frosted Over one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wish they pulled that off more often, but it was cool when they did. Overall, it's not a bad show. And if you watch it in a vacuum, it probably feels better than if you watch it as we did right after the prior year. Yeah. But in context of its series, it just feels like too much of the same thing. Judged on its own, I think it's acceptable, but not great. Judged with last year's, despite some things going better, it feels like a pale imitation of something that had felt totally unique. Right, exactly. Yeah, if they'd done little things like not had Luger's title win happen, and Luger comes in to challenge, mm-hmm. it would help a little bit feel different than Hogan coming in, challenging the title, winning it again. Yeah, get a little less repetition there, yeah. Exactly. Okay, we are going on to our match of the night and MVP. So, Al, what's your match of the night? Like I said, there's very few standouts here. There's a bunch of matches that I would like to appoint, like with DDP and Hennig, for instance, or like they almost get somewhere really good, like with the tag title match. And even some that are just, I thought it were okay, they done a little bit more here and there, it could be really, really strong, like, say, Jericho and Bright, for instance. Mm-hmm. Or, I can even appreciate the uniqueness of the elimination tag match with the way they handled yes. Jeff Jarrett. For me, the best match of telling the story is still Ray and Conan. Mm-hmm. 
like I said, I was really sour this match initially. I think it got in my mind that it was a slow-paced, one-sided thing from the beginning. When I really watched again more detail, like I said, Ray is competitive, except for the one part, really throughout the end, and he does a good job of selling his ring. You want to see him win and come through, and then he doesn't, and you, you want to see him come back now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that for me is the best match. Yeah, for me, this was between Conan versus Mysterio and the Outsiders versus the Steiners. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to agree with you. I'm going with Conan versus Mysterio. Mysterio just does a tremendous job selling the injury. And Conan puts on a creative and varied beatdown. So it remains an interesting match, despite an almost complete lack of the usual Mysterio high-flying antics. It's a risky match to do with Mysterio because you could lose the interest of the viewers if they don't see what they expect. But they put on such a good show that it kept me watching. So that deserves some real credit. Yeah, the story they tell is really good. Yeah, yeah. MVP? So, yeah, there's a bunch of good options here, honestly. I mean, that Luger definitely stepped up in comparison to the Giant last year. I would easily make the case for Jarrett as MVP. There's a big caveat. If they gave him a promo after to bragging about how well he did, if he gets this whole thing where he voids the match and then brags the next show how he, no one could beat him and, like, say, Mongo comes to the challenge and the setting up Clash, mm-hmm. I think he seals that. Booker T does well. I mean, Ray is really good. Conan's good at his attack. But Benoit delivered quite well. Even considered even to Flair because how much he really puts over a six. <laughs> For his strong performance, stepping up again from previous match with somebody else had, and just being selfless and putting it over, I'm picking Randy Savage. Okay. That he delivered a good, short, simple match, really built giant as this guy that is a big threat to the company on a show where they just took out the biggest threat to the company besides him. Okay. I am going with. Scott Hall. Okay. I thought everyone involved in Outsiders versus the Steiners did a great job, but Scott Hall was just at his absolute best in that match, playing the maximum possible insufferably cocky heel from start to finish and needlessly aggravating the Steiners at every turn, even when it cost him. Mm. From like seconds into the match when he's slapping Scott Steiner just to tick him off, you want to see Hall get his clock cleaned, Mm. and he just pushed it further and further from there. So it was an absolutely wonderful heel performance from him, I thought. And I, I do want to also say, definitely agree, honorable mention Jeff Jarrett. Yeah. He put on a similarly great heel act, but he just was not featured for long enough. He had, if he had something else on the show, I think he would have taken mm-hmm. it. Yeah. For the short time he's on the show, man, he just immediately caught you with, with his performance there. And that wraps up our review of Road Wild 1997. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, Road Wild 1998. Road fast. Road hard. No one knows where this road goes. Really? I mean, MapQuest did exist in 1998, guys. Yeah. Other signs? <laughs> Weird. I understand all roads lead to Rome, so presumably there. Oh, that, there you go. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling.
Tony mentions that Luger recently became the world champion and wonders if he can hold on to it in the return match with Hogan. Well, one c- oh sorry. <laughs> I thought that I, t- I did a typo, but in fact it was <laughs> Tony making a mis- misstated announcement that I included a joke on. So, let me rewind and do the misstatement correctly. <laughs> okay. Hall grabs Scott's leg to try to stop the tag, but Scott kissed. But <laughs> here, brother, that was a that's one way to break the tag. I guess. <laughs> oh my gosh, the the Scott and Hall thing is messing me up so much. This was by far the worst one to write the match summary of because I was getting mixed up by which person I was yeah. calling Scott the entire time. Only gonna make it worse for you if it was, if it was like a six man match and Piper was on their side. So you'd have the hot Scott and Scott and Scott. <laughs> 